are done. Tuned in to Progressive Action Radio, the most objective show in America. Hosted by Tramel Thompson. Co-hosted by Jamel Wilson. And DJ Damage is on the wheels of steel. You will never know what to expect when thoughts and wisdom unite. People, get ready. Ready, ready. Progressive Action is now live. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Progressive Action Radio. I got my co-host with me, Jamel Wilson. What's going on, cuz? I'm doing great, man. How you Speaking doing, to cause? the mic, cuz. I'm, do- I'm doing great. How you doing, cuz? Yeah, everything is good, man. Look, this is a special show today. We don't want to waste too much time. We got Mr. Steve Downs in the building, and we got Mr. Roger Toussaint in the building today. And this is going to be a very informative show. This is almost like a reunion of sorts. That's right. It's a reunion for the uh, <laughs> New Directions factions. We yeah, got some uh, people here I never met, Mr. John McCarthy. Nice, nice for you to come by. But we go get straight to the point and straight to the questions. Mr. Steve Downs, who are you and what do you do? What have you done? What is your history with MTA? What is your history in the union? I was hired as a conductor in 1982, became a train operator in January 1984, uh, and I retired from the Transit Authority in the fall of 2014. Uh, I'm currently Chief of Staff at TW Local 100, and for much of the time between 1990 and 2014, I was uh, an elected officer, either executive board or Chair, um, excuse me, chair of the train operators division. Train op, so you was a train operator. Um, what and who is New Directions, and who created it? Uh, New Directions was a caucus, a, a rank and file membership caucus within the Transport Workers Union. It was a group of transit workers and eventually low-level officers who challenged the uh, the leadership of the union under Sonny Hall. Damaso Seda and uh, Willie James. It was formed um, by a, a range of people. Uh, myself, Tim Schirmerhorn, uh, John Semino, John McCarthy. Um, there was a time in alliance with um, uh, the Nubian Society within the union, uh, Naomi Allen. Uh, there was, you know, many people involved in its, in its foundation and, its, and building it over the years. Okay, and um, y'all also had a newspaper, correct? There was a newsletter called Hell on Wheels, uh, which existed before New Directions, and sort of... Okay. Um, What would you consider the integrity of of that newspaper? Was it honest? Uh, We tried to, yes. I mean, the the purpose of the newsletter was initially simply to get basic information out to the members. We started the newsletter, I think, in 1985. Uh, this was the years after the 1980 strike. The membership was um, uh, fairly demoralized after that strike. There was not, at that time, even a local... The, the union didn't put out a newspaper. There was no mechanism to get information to the members. Uh, in addition, the newsletter tried to link uh, people in different departments, show them that conductors, bus operators, station agents, cleaners, whatever, were facing similar circumstances and needed to work together to overcome the uh, the challenges we faced from the transit authority. Okay, so it was a, it was a good informative piece of material, basically. 
Uh, I think the members found it that way. It was, it was always popular when it hit the road and the, the print run and the distribution grew uh, quite rapidly and, uh, from, a, I don't know, I think our first run was like 2000 and we eventually were up to and our biggest run was probably 16,000, something like that. Okay, because I'm just trying to get, um, you know, a little bit of a background because I did do a little bit of research. I'm just trying to fi figure out a few things. Um, I found the article and it was in 1999, the newspaper sponsored by New Directions, you know, which you, you were an integral part, so it's good that I asked you these questions. In a piece of the newspaper, I seen something that was describing Mr. Tucson. And it said, and I quote, although every honest officer's work is limited by the cowards and schemers at the top of our local, Tucson and the track committee provided a model of how militant and union-spirited officers could find ways to defend the membership from management attacks. Many of us in New Directions caucus of Local 100 looked to Toussaint for guidance or tried to translate the work he was doing into different conditions in other divisions. Now, to me, it seems like Mr. Toussaint has carried that same honor throughout till he left. I just want to know what or who convinced um, you to change your outlook because it seemed like y'all bumped heads somewhere down the line. What or who um, changed your outlook? Because y'all praised them in the newspaper, and then it ended up being a different story down the line. Uh, I would, I don't agree that I changed my outlook, um, and I don't think that it's. Uh, I don't think it's always the best explanation to say that people changed, something changed, and they went a different way. But um, to sort of get to the uh, the heart of it. In, as you said, that was in 1999, so that was during a uh, contract fight uh, before the elections that where New Directions won the primary offices in the local. Um, in June of 2000, June 3rd of 2000, New Directions met to choose its candidates for the top offices in the, in the local. And uh, I remember speaking at that meeting, and I said that uh, Roger would make a very good candidate and a poor president. And I said he would be a poor president because uh, he won't listen to the voices of people who, even though they're with him and on his side, disagree with him. And I cited then, and I can cite now, several uh, examples of that that had occurred during the previous year um, during our contract fight. Uh, that. That meeting chose Roger as the presidential candidate in New Directions. I supported that slate. I, you know, I didn't, didn't uh, try to undermine that choice in any way, but I felt that there, um, there were, as there should be, there were differences within the organization. It was a vibrant, lively uh, organization. People came to it for, with different experiences and with different expectations. And yes, uh, in the course of uh, 1999, 2000, uh, Roger and I bumped heads on a number of things. Okay. Now, Mr. Toussaint, what, what, what was your um, influence or involvement with New Directions? Uh, maybe I should just introduce myself properly first in case you have any new listeners. Okay. Uh, so um, my name is Roger Toussaint, and I served as the president of uh, Local 100 from 2001 through 2009. Prior to that, I was the chairman of the track division for six years, beginning in 1995. 
I started in transit in 1984 as a cleaner. Then I went on to become a track worker. But my involvement in transit actually began with the 1980 strike. I, as a member of the community, I marched on the picket lines at Prospect Park and Flatbush Depot supporting transit workers in the 1980 strike. Um, so my, my background in transit um, goes back all that way, but even before that, I was always very active in the community. Um, and so I have a, a relatively long history. So to fast forward to, your, to, your, to new directions and, um, and my involvement, I believe that I linked up with New Direction sometime in the latter part of the 90s. I can't exactly recall whether it's 97 or 98, but somewhere around 97, I would suspect. Um, <clears throat> but I had been involved in rank and file organizing from my very first days in transit. In 1984, one of the first things I did as a transit worker is organize the cleaners at Jerome Barn to remove a shop steward who was a spy for management, a fellow named Garrity. Um, he would hand out the mops and the buckets and spy on us and take wood back to the bosses. So my, as a probationary um, cleaner, um, I organized transit workers to to deal with that situation and have had him removed. Um, since that time, I've been organizing rank and file actions in track and beyond, um, pretty much nonstop from 1984. And as a result, I had been um, targeted by management and been suspended numerous times uh, because I, I, what I brought to the table is that I, um, I particularly organized transit workers and track workers in particular to engage in direct action over safety and abuse and the type of humiliation that, um, that had become life in transit in the 80s and the, and the, and the early 90s. Um, so around 97, I, myself and several of the people that I was, we were organizing with in track department decided to join New Directions. Um, I could be off by some time there. Um, and then uh, my first I ran as I believe on as a recording for the on, as recording secretary on the New Directions ticket in 1998 I think. It was uh, 97. 97. Yeah. 97. So that must have joined a little before then. Um, and then when the issue came up of the 1990 the 2000 elections, there was a a broad discussion in new directions over who should be the presidential candidate to lead the ticket. And um, that was a long and animated discussion that had been brewing in the organization for some time. Long story short, new directions met en masse and overwhelmingly elected, voted for, my, for me to lead the ticket. Now that was significant because um, new directions had been founded since the mid, mid 80s and um, it had been led de facto or otherwise by Steve Dongs and Tim Skimmer, Naomi Allen, and so forth. Um, um, that they provided much of, the, uh, much of the thinking and analysis and vision for the organization. Um, so something happened that the members of New Directions in mass decided that they did not want to continue with that vision and that direction that being provided 
there and um, and and voted for me to be the 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 candidate. Um, and I believe that what that was was that New Directions had um, had had be, had become much of a talk shop and short on being able to take the fight to the bosses in the MTA. And what was needed in the MTA at the time was 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 a bold vision and aggressive attitude towards dealing with the abuse that was coming down from the from the transit authority and the and new directions under the leadership of Mr. Skimon and Mr. Dongs and they were more given to talking the bosses to death and analyzing this and analyzing that and not being able to take the ball down the field. And I think the members sense that and this is why they um they, they voted for a change. And even in that same article I seen that um I guess the reason they did that article that I referenced uh they was praising you when you was going against a battle against actually TA itself and the union itself with, uh, with Willie James of not getting support, uh, the union not supporting you and TA trying to fire you because of a lateness of a, a day late of some type of report. You want to explain that? Well, if this was 1999, I had been terminated in, in, the, in the summer of 1998 on a flimsy charge. I was traveling with a union staff rep between um, be meeting one um, TA boss at Linden Shop, going down to J Street to meet another TA boss. And the staff rep was driving the vehicle. The vehicle stopped at a red light. The vehicle was rendered. I was injured. The transit already brought a charge saying that, um, that I was in violation of the rules because I should not have been in a, in a union vehicle. That was the charge. And then they implemented the penalty on the grounds that the union turned in, the, a union representative turned in my appeal. Of course, the penalty was dismissal, termination. Um, and they implemented the penalty and did not give me a, a hearing on arbitration on the grounds that the appeal was turned in one day late on the sixth day instead of the fifth day. Not very significant much of this except that... Um, that this was highly unusual and and um, an over a bit overkill and it was perceived as such broadly by the members and eventually by the media and so forth um, and there was a reason for that and I think that um, it is very much because the 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 transit authorities saw what I was doing and the type of organizing that I was engaged in as a threat. There were pockets of, of militants, transit workers, who were doing similar type of organizing in different departments um, on their own. Um, I mean, car equipment, I know that the, the, the officers there were doing quite a bit of um, fighting on the ground to stand up to the to management bullies and so on, and in other departments. So there were, and, and, there's, and there's some history of that taking place. Quite, quite irrespective of what was going on at the top in New Directions. Okay. Now I wanna, I wanna fast forward a little bit because I'm pretty much a, a new member. I only been, I've been uh, since what 2013. Yeah. And um, yeah, 2013. I wanna know, did you support Mr. Steve Downs the last contract? No, I did not. What parts of it? I'm sorry, but last contract. Which I'm sorry. Let me back up. Uh, I was thinking about the contract that came out of the strike. But if you mean by the last contract, uh, the one we're working under now, yes, I supported that. All right. And um, so the, uh, we go talk about the 2005 one. Did you support that one? I did not. Why not? Um, I thought that the contract, 
the, the, the significant give back of the 1.5% to pay for uh, retiree medical benefits and beyond, it was never clear what the beyond was, what extra amount of, what, where that extra money was going for. That was a significant give back. And it, in my feeling, the, um, that it was not worthy of the strike. The strike, the members had finally, after 25 years, a whole generation of the workforce had um, struck again following the 1980 strike. Um, and it was not a, uh, a contract that I think um, reflected the the uh, militancy of the membership, the determination of the membership to, to move forward. So, no, I, I oppose that contract um, on both votes. I think you probably know that the contract was rejected uh, when it was put up for the first time. Roughly 20,000 members voted, and it was very narrowly rejected. It was rejected by seven votes. Mm -hmm. um, and it was then, uh, after roughly two months uh, later, it was resubmitted to the membership. Uh, for another vote uh, in an effort to head off binding arbitration, I believe. Um, and I oppose it again. Train Operators Division was the only uh, division in the local that uh, voted the contract down uh, both times. Okay, now in, the, in the, the last contract, the health of benefit contribution was 2%. Yes. So you was against the 1.5, but you was with the 2% for this contract. The, uh, yeah. That's true. I mean, partly the 1.5% uh, the opened the door, which was not going to be closed again. So we were faced with a situation of um, in order to uh, settle a contract and avoid binding arbitration, uh, it was necessary to make uh, two givebacks. One was to increase the 1.5% to 2%, and the other was to extend the uh, time it takes for a new, uh, new worker to get to top pay. Um, but it was, in my opinion, um, it was uh, not saying I was happy with either one, but in contrast to the 1.5% in 2005, which uh, brought in more money to the TA than the benefit we got back, that, that increase in that half, you know, that, that half percent increase to 2% uh, brought much less money to the MTA than we got back in additional benefits. Okay, now, was this, like, as far as the health benefit, was this the first time a give back was happened in the contract? Oh, no, not by any means. Okay, because I've I seen that, and I say in another newspaper um, that uh, a give back of 1% well, happened. Mr. Dong just said that it opened the door. What does open the door mean? Uh, you can ask him that. Yeah, well, he just said open the door. Well, if the question is, did it open the door to give backs? Of course not. There were give backs for... No, but they did open the door to health benefits contribution. That 1.5% uh, um, was the, the first time that the members were asked to vote on a uh, beginning to pay a portion of their medical care. Um, and again, that, uh, we got a benefit from it. We got retiree health care, but we were paying much more than the cost of retiree health care. I think Roger's probably referring to the, um, the deal that uh, Damaso Seda made when he was president where the um, got legislation passed in Albany which reduced, uh, which restored a 2555 pension. It reduced the pension we were uh, under at the time from a 3062 pension to a 2555 pension. Um, there was an increased contribution from the members to pay for that. We went from paying uh, 3% to, I believe, 5.2%. Uh, 
Um, and then after the vote on the contract, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the, the pension was not part of the contract. And then we found that after the um, pension change took effect, we found that there had been a deal made for members to pay a, uh, an undefined percentage of their salaries for retiree medical benefits. And there was a whole long fight around that. It went to arbitration. But that also cost Damaso Seda his job because the reaction of the membership to that uh, additional payment they had to make, which they hadn't been informed of and they hadn't been expecting, led to a strong campaign by New Directions to recall the top officers. And there was massive uh, petitioning. Thousands of members signed petitions uh, to recall the officers for what the members viewed to be this deception of this added uh, contribution or, or, or deduction for medical benefits. And it reached the point um, that where Sonny Hall, who was at the time the president of the National Union, uh, basically plucked Damaso Seda out of the local, gave him a job at the International to head off the, uh, the really surging movement by the membership to recall the top leadership of the union. Okay, you have any response to that? Yeah, I mean, this is just <clears throat> fairly pretty deceptive on Steve's part because I think everyone, all, all your listeners who are transit workers and you guys must have heard in the past Steve Bedell, Nicholas Bedell, and union leaders, or the, or the current union leaders, say that the one point, just like how Steve um, spoke before and said it opened the door, that's what they've been saying. This was the first time. That's what they've been telling transit workers. But he just gave a long convoluted explanation to say that it wasn't the first time. And in fact, there, <clears throat> there was a medical contribution um, of 1% that lasted up to six years before the strike. That, was got, that, got, that we got rid of at the, in, at the close of, in, in, at the end of 1999 or the end of 2000, um, but it was negotiated out of the contract, sorry, in 1999. Uh, so that, that's important because when we were in the strike situation, we assessed um, that as a manageable concession that we could make and get retiree medical benefits out of it. So we got retiree medical benefits, which is important and which they may attempt to, to, to minimize the importance of it, but that was precedental. It was for the first time retirees got medical coverage until, they med until, um, they, until Medicaid pick, um, kicked in. Um, and, um, um, and we believe that, that we could, we, we could have um, worked out that uh, 1.5 contribution, and we in fact did. In the next contract in 2012, we took steps to do precisely that. Uh, sorry, in, 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 um, in the 2008 9 contract, what we did is we, um, we capped it at 40 hours instead of gross pay, and we, and we, and we eliminated any escalation. Uh, so that was the first step to, to deal with the 1.5. I made that a priority in the negotiations. So we began, the, we began a course of fixing the 1.5. And after a torrent of complaints by Mr. Dungs, Mr. Samuelson, and others, 
about the 1.5, what did they do in 2014? They went and they increased it to 2%. Um, but, uh, but I don't want it to be, to be escaped here, to, to escape people's attention here, that they have repeatedly on record said, in the chief and in their statements and so forth, that this was the first time that there was a medical contribution. And you heard him say just now that it opened the door. And when it didn't, because it existed before, which is why we knew it was manageable. It was negotiated out of the contract before. It entered the contract in 94, and, it won, and was taken out of the contract in 99. And we believe we could have done the same thing and come out of the strike with a victory. Is he right, Mr. Downs? Is he? We disagree. It's not, I mean, it, it's, I think, a mistake but to just did, say, it, is it, that right? It did, it, it did it, exist before 2005. The, there is. Uh, yes no? I said, yeah, I said that before. Okay. You said, but there's a, I think there's a significant difference between a contribution which is hidden from the membership, um, which causes a um, uh, a reaction by the membership to try and get rid of that, and get rid of the leadership that negotiated it, uh, where the members had not been aware that was, you know, part of the package, and then which is negotiated away, and then five years later turn around and, nego and negotiate it quite openly back in, and the members rejected that contract. Okay. It's important so, to keep that in mind. The members voted no. So I think that both what I said is clear and what he said is clear, and people should make their own judgment based on the, because the 1.5 is a sticking point, and there's been a lot of commentary. What is good about this is that these, these gentlemen, Mr. Dongs, Mr. Samuelson, Nicholas Bedell and company, they have been on record repeatedly over the 10 years since the strike. And it's very easy to establish what they have been saying publicly and openly and lying to transit workers. But I want to move, switch to another point that you mentioned. You mentioned, Mr. Dongs just mentioned that in the 2014 contract, it was necessary claim to make two concessions. This time it is necessary. Right, to increase it to 2%, the 1.5, and to increase the, 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 um, the, the, the time for new hires to get a top pay, to five years, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is what we call a two-tier contract, right? Mm -hmm. you, do organize, you negotiate different tiers for different employees and you, div you create divided interests. Now this is very important. Um, and I want, to I want to read a quote from you, for you and for your listeners, of what Steve Dong said um, when he wrote, he wrote um, uh, um, an, uh, a review, a book review, for a book that was issued called Solidarity Divided. And he did this in um, 2009. And here's what he said in that review, commenting on this book on trade union issues. <clears throat> Quote, and as unions surrender past gains, divisions among workers deepen. Two-tier contracts, for instance, cause conflicts between workers with more seniority who are often white and workers who are hired later, disproportionately people of color and women. When job cuts are cut to restore profit profitability, People of color and young people have the hardest time finding work. So that's what that was Steve Dong's comment in a book review 
about the danger of negotiating two-tier contracts and the damage that it does. If you, if you look at the contracts that was negotiated under my administration, we consistently made sure that we did not do damage to the unity of, the tr of transit workers with respect to the terms and conditions of employment. Um, and now you have a union that has returned to the course of creating two-tier contracts, not only with respect to new hires taking longer to top pay and longer to get five weeks vacation, but cleaners, the traditional underclass, heavily people of color, heavily women, they now have the longest time to move to, to top pay. Again, once again, the restoration of, 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 of treating different members differently, which is how the old guard used to operate inside of this union for many, many years when they imposed a $4 an hour for new hires, when they left cleaners out of wage progressions in past contracts and so forth. Mr. Samuelson, Mr. Downs are returning exactly to that course. So let me ask you, Mr. Downs, are you against two-tier um, systems of wages and benefits? I, yes, and I don't think we negotiated a two-tier contract. And I think it's important uh, in a two-tier contract, a two-tier wage structure refers to a wage structure where there is a permanent lower rate for people hired after a certain date. And we see uh, right now there was a, there was a strike at, uh, I think, what was it, Kohler Bathroom Products in Wisconsin. There have been strikes at other places. In, at the, it was a major issue in the auto industry uh, negotiations. They have one rate of pay for people who hired before one date, and then a permanent lower rate for people hired after another date. That's a two-tier structure. This isn't any, the going, the five years to top pay, or three years to top pay, or two and a half years to top pay, which is what it was when I started, is not a two-tier structure. It's a wage progression. Uh, I'm not saying it's great. I wasn't thrilled with it, but I think it was a necessary thing. Also, I want to point out, if, like, if I were Roger Toussaint, I would say that Roger Toussaint has just lied about certain aspects of the contract. But I actually don't think he was lying. I don't think it was deliberate. I think he's mistaken, and I want to clarify that mistake he made. It is not the case that there is anything in this contract that requires people to take longer to get to five weeks vacation. That is not accurate. I'm not going to accuse him of lying, but he's wrong about that. It is also not the case that there was any change made to how long it took or takes cleaners to get to top pay. Um, this is not, I've heard that accusation before, and I'm saying, what the hell is this talking about? So I actually went back and looked at previous uh, contracts, and at least from 1999, cleaners started at 60% of top pay, and uh, and took an extra year to get to top pay. So that was the case when Roger negotiated a contract in 2002, when he negotiated a contract in 2005, and when he negotiated a contract or when it went to arbitration, rather in 2009. There was no change in the structure of the relationship between cleaners pay, their starting salary, or how long it takes them to get to top pay. Just let me clarify something. I may have misspoke if I said five weeks to vacation, five, to five years to, if, if that's what I said. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I can't recall exactly what I said in terms I of the five weeks of vacation. I know but what you said. You but said that's not what I meant. That, I, would have, uh, I would have misspoke if I said that. But I distinctly recall that on the cleaner issue, that the cleaners had a different track to top pay. 
than the rest of the employees. I don't know if anyone else here recall that. Yeah, I, I recall that. that. Yeah. In I this contract, that. in yes. the 2014 contract. Yes. Okay. Well, you may recall that, but you're mistaken. It's not there. It's in the contract. Uh, well, it's not, Roger. Well, I, I, I hope not. that you are mistaken as well, well and not lying, but I believe it is there. And, well, you, and that you, could be. You, th that's you frequently believe what you want to believe, Roger. That's whether relatively it's factually easy to based or not. Okay? It's relatively easy to establish because it's a matter of record what whether in fact cleaners had a different progression track than everyone else. All right. So we could go back and forth on that, but let's, let's talk about this. One of the things done by the present leadership was to kill the STEP program. Why was this done and, why, and do you agree with it? In the apprenticeship program. Yeah. Um, well, it wasn't killed. It was suspended. And it was suspended uh, because, and I should have made this clear. I'm not here representing the local leadership. I'll speak, you know, I'll speak from what I know, and I'll certainly speak from my experience in uh, Helen Wheels and New Directions, but I'm not here representing the local leadership. But the apprenticeship program was suspended because, um, not because it was not a good program. It was a good, good idea. It was a good program. It's sound. It's going to be coming back. But the, uh, when negotiated, there was no... The union did not negotiate a requirement that there be budgeted positions available for the people coming out of the apprenticeship program, the STEP program. So we found ourselves in a situation a few years back where uh, people were graduating from the program, getting ready to move into a, uh, a helper position. The authority said, uh, we're not going to do that. The union grieved it. The union fought it and went to arbitration. And the arbitrator said, um, look, there's an agreement between the union and management that uh, these people will graduate from apprenticeships to helpers, and uh, I'm going to enforce that. But there is no agreement that, there be, that the authority create positions for them. So if the authority, which as they have made clear in these hearings, if they, if they are going to lay off uh, existing helpers in order to make room for these people, they, have, they can do that. Well, that's not a position the union can endorse, that we're going to bring people out and lay off somebody else and shuffle people around back and forth like that. So the program um, was suspended. It's being uh, retooled and it's being uh, negotiated so that there are budgeted positions. When somebody um, comes out of the STEP program and is ready to move into the helper position, there will be a position for them. Um, and it will not cost somebody else their job. To your knowledge, was it even fought for? Or they said that's it and the union didn't fight for it? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by fight. Um, did we strike to prevent that? No, we no, did not strike. Of course not. Um, we, we sought to enforce the language of the contract um, and went to arbitration. And the arbitrator said, union, you're right. But if I order them to do this, they can lay people off who are in the incumbent positions. And uh, there was an attempt we made to get around that, to negotiate uh, new positions, to negotiate budgeted positions. We were not successful. And so rather than have that conflict between the members, um, we said, look, we have to uh, suspend this for the time being until we can. And there was, in, again, one of the features of the last contract was, in fact, language to uh, have the parties meet and uh, retool the apprenticeship program. And that... Uh, the results of that um, will be will be out soon. 
What's your opinion? Yeah, Mr. let me address that. The 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 um the 2002 contract and the 2000 and subsequently had a very specific number on it, 96 apprenticeship positions. And you can it's a matter, a matter of record. You can go to the contract. The numbers are in there. The number of apprenticeship positions, and it identifies the titles that they're to, they're there to be assigned to. Yes, all the, all the, that is all spelled out. Um, I'll, I'll explain to you what was go what actually happened here. As far as with them. With yes. The, right. Yeah. Prior to my administration, the there existed an apprenticeship program that relied exclusively on outside, mostly high school students, but no transit workers were promoting. Now, many years ago, there was an apprenticeship program in car equipment and so forth. In fact, John Semino and, um, and Anita Clinton came in as cleaners, went through that program, and Anita Clinton was one of the first female um, air brake maintainers, and John, John Semino ended up as a car inspector and so forth. That was back in the, in the 80s. But certainly in my time, and when I took over, there were no opportunities for promotion in-house for entry-level titles. So we were preoccupied with trying to make sure that entry level, our entry-level members who were in unskilled titles, most notably cleaners, station agents, traffic checkers, and so forth, who invariably tend to be mostly people of color and heavily women, that they had an opportunity to move into the, into the trade positions, into the skill positions. So we redesigned and fought with management fiercely. Management was completely and violently opposed to doing it in-house. And we insisted and we dug our heels in and came out of the 2002 contract with, a, with an absolute guarantee assuring in-house promotion from entry-level titles into the trades. Now, this never sat well with certain union officers, most notably the officers allied with Mr. Samuelson and Mr. Dung, such as Tony Utano. He was the chairman of infrastructure. He is now the vice president of maintenance of way. And, and, um, um, it, and the history in, in many of the trades has been that they tend to be all male and, and mostly white enclaves inside of transit, right? And, um, and if you grew up in New York, you knew that these positions, apprenticeship positions, were usually obtained based on patronage, who you know, and family, and so forth. You get into the program, and that's how lots of folks ended up in the trades, right? but not if you come from oppressed communities, and not if you're a female. So, um, so, so there was an opposition, there was a studied opposition inside of the union from those guys to against in-house promotions being, um, being established as new policy inside of the union. So one of the very first things that was done under Samuelson is that the apprenticeship program and the step programs got a direct hit, not from labor relations, but from the union, from Utano, from Samuelson, right? Now, the cover story becomes that management said that we don't have positions to put them in. Let's go to the arbitrator. Wink, wink, wink. The arbitrator said, I understand what the parties want me to do, right? 
both of you all don't want this anymore. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to indicate that the authority could proceed with layoffs if they do have these positions. But what I'm saying to you, that was a setup. What he just explained there, that was a setup. What, this was driven by the union's opposition to in-house promotion for entry-level titles into the trades. And that's where that is coming from. I'm completely convinced that that's what, it is, that's what the evidence is. Well, what because evidence? They He's also, convinced they of also it with no evidence. They he has nothing did, to support it. They He's also convinced. Did the, one, at a, one at a time. Right. Guys. One at a time. They also did the same thing with station maintainers mo moving into the... In, because there was a program for station maintainer helper with a, a new title, with a, with, a, with, a, um, with, a, with a new wage rate and so forth. That too was scuttled immediately by Mr. Samuelson and Mr. Utano. Scuttled by them. Go, Mr. I'm sorry. He's, he's expressed an opinion. He, he, he says he treats his opinions as if they are facts, as if he has any, some evidence for this. He has none. He has presented none. This is what he thinks happened. It's not what happened. Oh, all right. So, I, I, I mean, it's, unless you talk in fact, I feel like it's opinion on both ends because uh, you said you're not speaking on behalf of the union. So, you, I figure that you don't really know what's going on. Or you saying your opinion of what you think? Well, I know there was an arbitration. I know what the outcome of that arbitration was. I know that the arbitrator said that the authority um, uh, can lay off people to make room for the people coming out of the apprenticeship program. Um, you know, we'll, we'll know within a matter, we'll know this year, I think within a matter of months, um, which one of us is, is right, because there will be a, a restart of the apprenticeship program. Uh, you, in the meantime, you can review, this is directly from the, the actual contract of the Oh, there's no question. The contract provides exactly what he said. No, no, But no, it didn't no. provide that there be budgeted positions. That concerns the cleaners. That concerns okay, the cleaners. Okay, can I read it? Yeah, you can read it. Okay. This is in the current 2014 contract, wage progression. Employees hired after ratification of this agreement shall progress to top rate of pay according to the following schedule, except for cleaners newly hired workers in titles whose wage progression in prior agreements was 70%, 80%, 85% will progress to top rate of pay as follows. First year, 70%. Second year, 75%. Third year, 80%. Fourth year, 85%. Fifth year, 90%. Okay. So that's the actual contract. That's that's reading directly from the contract. And right it, it now, says, it says the fifth year ninety percent. Right, fifth year ninety percent. So now it's really for, six. It's really well, six years to get the top. Well, pay. it never does say when you get the top pay. You assume that that means that after after that step you move to top pay, but that remains to be seen. I will contend. I will. I will. I will contend that management has an argument available to you there that there is nowhere in that language that top pay is identified. So you're saying that I'm, they could be stuck at 90%. What I am saying is that management, it, would, it wouldn't surprise me if management <laughs> make that claim, either because this was the deliberately um, the language agreed to or because the, because the, language, or because the language was sloppy. Mm -hmm. The union agreed to sloppy language it wouldn't surprise me that the because at the end of the day, in arbitration, the rule of thumb is that the la, the language is controlling. When parties differ regarding the interpretation, 
the rule of law is that the, the actual language is controlling. And there's no language there that says, at X time, you reach 100% of pay. It doesn't say that. And that's a problem. Right. And now for cleaners, the cleaners will progress to the top rate of pay as follows. First year, 60%. 60%. Right. Which is what it was before this contract was negotiated. I know it's five there years is, there. There is no change in that. So I'm, I'm not sure what the point here is. This, as I said, the contract, at least back to 1999, cleaners started at 60% of the full rate. And that didn't change. Prior to this, me. Didn't, yeah, that's right. And you didn't change right. that. And John didn't change that. But John didn't create that either. No, but the progression so, and, is now and five years, right? The progression is five years. Five years. Yes. And, yeah, and the, before the progression was three years, right? That's right. And before that, it was two and a half years. And before that, it was one year. But it was three years when John got it, and now it's five years. That's right. Plus. That's right. But the, but the, the, the uh, accusation that you have made is that he somehow did, treated the cleaners worse. And yeah. my point is simply that the provision for the cleaners was there previously and didn't improve any, but, it, but he didn't create that problem. And the, uh, no, you won't see a contract negotiated by this union which talks about when you get to 100% of pay. Could, could management actually right. use that against us since no. it's not in the, um, the No. So, so the record is that the, the progression used to be 70%, 80%, 90% top pay. But now it is, so it's a 10% jumps. So now it is 5% jumps over... Right. Right. Now, Steve, what I want to know is, um, before Roger was, you know, going backwards a little bit, before Roger was nominated to run for president uh, back in 2000 elections, um, I believe that uh, you and Tim Skimmerhorn were um, ran for president in a couple of elections prior to that, you know, prior to Roger getting elected. Tim, I never ran for president. Tim did. Oh, Tim did. Yeah. So what did you run for um, back during that time? Uh, the first time, New Directions first ran a slate, very, very limited, partial slate in 1988. And uh, Tim ran for president. I ran for local recording secretary. Um, after that, sorry, 1991, um, I ran for executive board for train operators. Okay, so why do you think that Tim Skimmerhorn didn't win, or why do you think you you know that New Directions couldn't win prior to that? I mean, I don't know. I guess it may sound silly, but I just had to ask. Um, we didn't win because we didn't convince enough people to vote for us. But that's that's always the case, right? Right. There was that's a question. <laughs> it was a question of building. We we were coming out of nowhere um, at 1988. Uh, see, I started in 82. I had six years on the job. Tim, I think, started in 84. Um, these are two train operators, um, Naomi Allen and car equipment, um, a few other people. There was no expectation. Nobody thought we could win. That wasn't the goal in running. The goal was to get the message out there, talk to people, get around to all different parts of the system, talk about the changes that were needed in, uh, in the local. Um, got. The, and, and, we, and we built every election after that, or between elections, we continued to put out the newsletter, we continued to organize on the job. Um, 91, uh, we had a slightly larger slate. And I'm trying to think, 20, I think in 88, I think Tim got 22% of the vote. 
in 91, uh, I believe he got 30 some percent of the vote. Um, we won the division committee in the train operators division. We won more executive board seats. Um, we led fights on, uh, on pick problems, led slowdowns in, on the job, um, and continued to build in opposition to contracts that were negotiated. We ran candidates for um, convention delegates to go and meet delegates from other locals to see if there were any people there who had similar ideas to us about changes that were necessary in the local. So with each, with each election, New Directions expanded its reach more people got involved, more people from different departments. We started bringing, um, I think, 97 for the first time. We actually fielded a full slate of officers from each division in the top, uh, in the top of the local, including private lines where we had, you know, before that we had no base. And it was a question of, of building over time and, and reaching the point where the members said, yeah, we, we trust these guys to, uh, to run the local. Okay. Now, um Earlier this year, I had stepped out the country, and you came to cover the uh, shop steward class. And Jamel was like, you know, Mr. Downs came through. He's very knowledgeable, and you know, uh, 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 of the shop steward class. I mean, knowledgeable of inf information, period. But um, what is your idea of a job of a shop steward? Um, I, that's a real good question. Uh, and I think that that gets to some real fundamental issues about how the union uh, is present on the job, okay. right? So um, there are, there's one school of thought which thinks that the union is like calling 911. You have a problem, you call up a union rep, somebody rushes down there and takes care of it for you. Um, there's another school of thought which is that, frankly, the union you know, sits in an office somewhere and waits for you to come to them and handles, uh, you know, helps you with insurance or helps you with a grievance, but doesn't get out on the job at all. And there's another school of thought, which is mine, which is more mine, which is that um, the reality, the union can't, union officers, elected officers, cannot be everywhere all the time. There are too many places to be and too few officers. So the, uh, it's important to train and educate shop stewards so that there is a union presence on the job. They may, they're not necessarily gonna be experts, they can't handle every single thing, but if a member has a problem, they can be there, they can say, you know, don't put that in your G2, or don't say that, or let's go, let's go deal with this issue and confront management and, and get this sorted out. Um, so the, in, my idea, in my opinion, the uh, function of a steward is to have to show the union's face, to get information to the members, to identify problems, to bring to, if they can't resolve them themselves, to bring to the elected officers so that the union leadership can focus its, uh, its energies and get people out where they're needed. Now, I'm gonna say this, because I was in the shop store class this year. I am not qualified to help someone with a G2 because I wasn't taught it. And you know, I feel that, the, uh, I don't know if it's done on purpose, or do, who looks over the uh, shop steward class, but it's, it's, it's ran very poorly, and it's sending uneducated stewards into the field. It's like sending a soldier in the field with no gun, because we're going in there basically the same way that we left. And, right. and, and is, I feel, is it done, I don't know if it's done on purpose, or if it's a lack, we need better teachers, 
somebody need somebody need to overlook the program because Bedell is capable of giving out more information and preparing us better. But six weeks is too short to not cover, um, you know, the necessary things. And you actually covered one of the classes. Which one was that? Which which class? What y'all learned that day? Um, I think we did some history of the union and history the connection of the civil rights movement. And then we also uh, discussed, we, we worked through the disciplinary process. We followed one case from incident to write up to arbitration. Right. And then we, and we spoke about the strikes, the, the history of the union, right. including the strikes. Right. Right. But how do you feel about the union putting shop stewards out there and don't even know how to help a, a fellow worker with a G2? Well, I don't, um, I'm sorry you feel that way about it. That's not the reaction I've gotten from most people who have gone through the class. Um, we, I mean, we, cannot, we cannot make, we don't make any claim that somebody coming out of that class is going to have all the skills and all the knowledge necessary to address all the problems they're going to confront in the field. And in fact, there have been members who have said they would like um, more practice in writing a grievance or writing a G2, um, maybe doing a step one hearing, and we have, we have scheduled that. I know there's, uh, Nick has organized what he calls the uh, advanced stewards training, where he goes into more detail on some of the specific things where, the, where the, the new stewards have identified a lack. You know, we can sort of present sort of a, a broad, um, broad range of information, a broad, we want people to be, you know, have a basic familiarity with the grievance procedure, with the discipline procedure, with the safety dispute resolution form, with um, where, when they can take a stand, when they have to back down a little bit. We can have, they can have a basic familiarity with that. But once they get out there and they, and they sort of put these ideas to the test and they get back to us and say, look, I, I didn't really feel comfortable doing this. I, I need some, some more on this. We say, great, you know, we'll do that. See, I, I think the problem is we all work for transit and we know how challenging these schedules could be. And to ask for a member to come down there and do more time, more time away from their families on their own time is, is kind of crazy when we could be handling, learning how to handle G2s somewhere within that first six weeks where we only got to show up for four. Me personally, I think that it should be ran eight weeks and more stringent. Well, you're, I mean, you're kind of contradicting yourself a little bit. You say we shouldn't ask people to come down and spend more time. But you said six weeks isn't enough. I mean, so and 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 just so I can interrupt the class the class you missed, um, we actually do have some discussion on the G two because we followed an actual case um, where a member was written up, had to write a G two, had to do a step one, and we we had the copy of the G two there. We, you know, we discussed what he did wrong in his G two, what he could have said, things like that. So it's. It, it's unfortunate that that's the class you missed. All right, so we're going to fix this right now. You feel comfortable writing the G, helping, a, helping a, a member with a G2? Um, to be honest, with, honestly, no. But the, the reason, but, but hold on, hold on. The reason why I say that is because just because you go to school for something, and I think Steve and a lot of people can agree that it's more than just being in the classroom. You have to practice. Practice makes perfect, basically, in life. So... In other words, I mean, you know, you, you know, you, you don't want, you know, you don't want nobody to be the crash test dummy with their job or whatever. But at the same time, it does take practice, you know. So beyond the class, I'm, I'm you know, ho hopefully that's what the advanced shops do a class would be about, you know, to really get 
nitty gritty into it and just basically get more practice, right? There's that, yeah, certainly. And also, if you know, many of the stewards, if they're asked to help somebody with the G2, they're then going to pick up the phone and say, you know, Steve or Erica or Kia, whoever, this is what, this is the situation, this is what I had him write. Is that how's that sound? Okay. And that's one of the ways you get experience and get the knowledge to, you know, to be able to Let handle me, the next, the second or third one more on your own. I was going to ask you, Roger, how do you feel about the shop stewards training, and how do you feel that, um, and did you ever have any shop stewards training prior to get, um, getting elected? No, I, I was never a steward before I was um, elected as chairman of the division and then president. Um, but we organized shop steward training from the very first days in office. And um, in 2001 and 2002, we, we um, trained over 1,000 shop stewards um, in preparation for the 2002 contract. Um, and we continued that train, the shop steward training um, after that as well. But um, and all the way into the 2005 strike and beyond. But let, but let me say what is more, what I think is, is, is the, where the rubber hits the road is not, if you throw shop stewards out there and tell them, go stand between the members and management and abusive management, I don't think that works. I think that it begins with what the union what the union does to set atmosphere in the relationship in the power relationship with management. In other words, then right now you have to assess in for instance in RTO, are the officers in the field, are the, is the staff in the field, are they dealing with the big policy issues in the field that, that, is, um, that, that is bearing on, um, on the members in the field? Um, and my, the indication I have is that is that, that, has, um, that, has, that has gone downhill steadily over the past several years under Mr. Dongs and Mr. Samuelson, um, that, that the presence in the field has been greatly diminished. And that the officers are hiding out in the Union Hall, um, now is 195 Montague, and very little presence in the field. Um, that's, my, that's, my, that's the reports that I receive, and that's my empirical sense. Um, but you would know better in terms of, in terms of whether that's the case. Now, what, what we did when we took over is we took a number of policy steps in order to change the atmosphere on the job. I mean, and we follow this up through negotiating provisions in the contract that attacked the ways management was attacking our members. For instance, by removing the um, removing the um, two thirds of our members from from being subjected to beaky visits, as an example, or negotiating the safety dispute and resolution form, th those type of items in, in inside of the contract. But more importantly. In the very first months of taking office, in the very first weeks, one of the first things that, that I did was fire all the arbitrators who had been firing our members left, right, and center in order to send a message to labor relations and send a message to the arbitrators. So before we asked shop stewards, while we were organizing shop stewards, before we asked them to put their bodies on the line, we put ours. We got in, we got in between management and the union and we sent message to, messages to management, and then we asked the shop steward to then um, help out and to, um, and to do what they could. 
but but I, I, I implemented a policy requiring the officers to spend the majority of their time in the field. Um, and that was one of the reasons I ran into some problems. One of the first officers that I had an issue with, I think I pointed it out before, was a fellow named Ken Carl. He, as soon as we won office, he showed up at the Union Hall in sneakers. <laughs> and he, and <laughs> repeatedly he would show up in sneakers and I would say to him, wait a minute, you're a train operator. What happens if there's a 12-9 and our train crews are being taken down J Street under escort as if they're criminals? They're already traumatized. We committed to our members that we would not leave them at the mercy of these bosses the way they were left before. So therefore, we need all our officers to be able to respond to the field and go to the field. And repeatedly, he kept in, insisting on showing up in, in sneakers. Now, he didn't say, I have bad feet or I have, have my work boots downstairs in the car. I'm good. None of that. No, he wanted to wear sneakers because he had no intention of going to the field. No intention of reporting to 12-9. No, no intention of going where train operators go and where conductors go. Because their training was to stay in the union offices or to, at the union hall or down at 130 Livingston Street, or now would be 2 Broadway, and to stay out of the field and rub shoulders with labor relations bosses and get familiar with them. That was the, that was the mindset. So if you have that type of atmosphere inside of the union, you can, you can, you can sh try to shift the burden onto the shop steward to change things, and that's just unfair, unless you are doing your job. Okay. Um, I want to talk about layoffs. Now, the largest layoffs happened up under the Samuelson administration. How do you feel about those layoffs? How do I, 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 you make it sound like the union brought the layoffs. The union did not bring the layoffs. Of course, I oppose the layoffs. That's, I, I don't understand quite the way you're framing the question. Um, but I actually think that uh, I, I'm... I'm a little surprised how little time we have spent talking about the 2005 strike because I think that that it not only is a significant historic event which needs to be evaluated, um, I think certain myths have been propagated here on this show about it, but it also the, the lingering effects of that strike framed what it was possible for the leadership to do when threatened with layoffs in 2010, right? So um, when we took office, 50% of the membership was not in good standing. Um, the uh, hundreds paid up their dues after we assumed office, but nonetheless, 50% of the membership was not in good standing. This was not a situation where um, we could galvanize and, uh, you know, a, a strike action to prevent layoffs, for example. Um, management saw the condition that the union was in from 2006 up until 2010. They uh, moved very quickly to try to muscle Samuelson into giving up things in the contract. They came, uh, Jay Walder, who was the uh, MTA chair, came and said, um, if you don't give up the last raise in the contract and agree to uh, a new 3062 pension, um, and I don't remember what the third thing was, I'm going to lay off station agents and bus operators. And uh, he believed, because it had worked against the union earlier in 1996, that 
the union would say, you know, after making some noise and pushing back a little bit, would say, okay. Um, that didn't happen. And he then proceeded to, uh, we, we were able to delay things a bit and we saved a couple hundred people from being laid off and we, you know, were able to move the pieces around a little bit. But the union was too weak. The, the union structure that we inherited when we took office in 2010 was too weak to engage in the kind of fight that it would have been necessary to do. He didn't, they didn't care about laying people off. They weren't interested in laying people off. They wanted the give backs. They wanted us to reopen the contract and give stuff back. Because in 96, Willie James had done that when he was threatened with layoffs. We didn't do that. Um, he carried through on his threat. Um, it didn't, it, it, the bus drivers got back pretty quickly, but station agents didn't. Um, and the local then, as you know, uh, took the initiative to uh, both harass and, and hound Walder, but also more, much more importantly, uh, to at least make sure that the medical coverage that the uh, laid off members would lose was covered. We, we created, we went to the membership and asked for approval to create a solidarity fund so that we could at least um, provide medical coverage since we, since they took a hit so that we could preserve the contract. All the, you know, all the benefits, all the gains that Walder was trying to take away. But that scenario wouldn't have existed without the uh, after effects of the strike and the um, divisions within the union, the moralization, and the belief on the part of the, and you know, like I said, 50% of the members had chosen not to pay, uh, not to remain in good standing. And that's what we walked in with. Do you know how many is in bad standing now? Um, yes, about 15%. What's and, the and some what, of that is certainly what, because the, new people have been hired. What's the number? You know? What, whatever 85%, whatever 15% <clears throat> of 40,000 is, that's what it is. Let uh, me just comment on this, please. Um, the, the, the MTA has threatened layoffs in almost every round of negotiations. They threatened layoffs in the 2005 round of negotiations when we, when we went on strike. In fact, they, um, and we told them that this would be a strike issue. Um, in, in the structure department, they accessed about 176 structure maintainers, um, and, um, but they maintained their pay and moved them, over to, uh, moved them over to the station department as cleaners, but they were threatening layoffs, and we told them that that would be war. In 2008, we negotiated a contract. Going into 2009, they threatened layoffs again. We told them, even though this was right after the strike, we told them that that would be a strike issue. It would be, that would be, a, that would be, we were not gonna take that. Because we understood what was happening, meaning they didn't need to do the layoffs, they were looking to take hostages in order to come to the table strong and for us to come weak. So we understood that play. Um, in fact, and, and these were m m far more adverse conditions than what you found later on in, 2000, in the late in the round of negotiations that Mr. Downs and Mr. Samuels negotiated because 2008 was the big market crash, meaning the biggest economic downturn since the 19, late 1920s and 1930s occurred on our watch and we negotiated a contract in those, in, under, those, under those circumstances. And right after the strike, we negotiated that contract, right? Um, so that was Mr. Mr. Dungs gave his take on explaining what motivated that situation. And everybody got to have their story. Here is mine, right? Mm -hmm. 
um, Mr. Samuelson um, believed that he had a good relationship going with the MTA because he had just helped change the direction of the union and they loved him for it. <laughs> right? So in 2010, he thought he, had, he wasn't good with them. Right? But they had finished using him. So the first thing that they did is that they, turned, they decided they're going to get ready for the, for the next round of negotiations by starting to muscle. To apply muscle now because they had finished using him. And what Mr. Samuelson did is he did a series of things, and you can go back through the record. He offered to create a, a dollar van company to run buses, run, um, to create, to compete on our own routes mm -hmm. in Brooklyn with creating dollar vans, run through the, somehow through the union. He offered to create a solidarity fund, not a solidarity, a fund to, to, this is before the solidarity fund. He offered to create a fund to give the MTA about 36 or $39 million because the MTA claimed that that is what their shortfall was. So his idea was to create a fund, transit workers contribute, and you turn that money over to the, to the MTA to, to satisfy their deficit. So by, by those type of responses, the MTA quickly realized that they had him on the run. So the next thing they came with is, lay, is the threat of layoffs. Not that they needed the layoffs, but they were looking for hostages. Again, it's all about how you, what, how the, how the, how the, how the employer read you, and whether you are, whether you um, you in retreat and you are backing up, and what, and whether they they can they can get over on you. And that's it was in that environment that they decided to proceed with the layoffs because because of the. Um, because Samuelson had been had been had been bowing to them over the in, in the manner that, that I just described, so the layoffs actually occurred for the first time in how many years, um, and that and that was the actual that is closer to the to the truth in terms of the explanation of what actually occurred. This business about that the strike left us weak. First of all, this fifty percent is the first time I've ever heard of that. And they have not published that and said it was only 50% of the as far as I have seen, right? That's not where we left it. We left it at, at a number in the 60s as far as my recall of what the records, record was. But what is interesting here, what is interesting here is that the, he, he talks about the members being demoralized and they didn't pay their dues. It was not that innocent. There were people issuing flyers. We counted about a dozen flyers that openly told people don't pay their dues. Do you uh, have an idea who they was from? From Ainsley Stewart, who was also a member of the International Union, an officer at the time. Anonymous flyers issued in this. He's now a, a, a member of management. He issued those flyers anonymously, but everyone knows what his flyers look like. <laughs> Mr. Samuelson issued a half a dozen plus flyers that said, even though in principle you should pay your dues, just be advised that any dues you paid, Roger Toussaint will waste it on staff salaries. So that was his way of telling people don't pay their dues. Mr. Dungs wrote flyers saying, um, pay a due, you should pay your dues in order to vote against Roger. Now if you're saying that in the context of the aftermath of the strike, we're talking 2007, 2000, because dues were removed in um, 2000. And seven, or in the summer of 2007. 
If you're saying that then, and the elections is not until 2009, transit workers might interpret this to say, oh, I, I need to pay up my dues when, when time comes to vote on the elections, right? I, if I want to run or if I want to vote against Roger. But that's what Mr. Dongs was saying. So the, these are the, so, so you have people like this who are undermining, undermining the, um, undermining um, transit workers from paying their dues. And there were, were steady campaigns of this nature by run by all the officers under Samuelson. Mark Albritton, um, Jack Blazowitz, all of them were encouraging people to not pay their dues. Um, and, and that is actually what the record was. So this was not some innocent thing by the members. This was, in, in their opinion, if the union faltered, if the, if, if the union was paralyzed and the administration was ineffective, that's good for them. Right? Mm -hmm. So they were discouraging people from paying their dues in order to see the union um, fall on its face. As soon as Samuelson came in, he started running in the newspapers. The individuals who had not paid their dues, like Frank Torelli, who was a former executive board member, Line Equipment Signal, he made them into heroes. The guys who had not paid their dues for several years, they became the heroes. Not the guys, not the, not the transit workers who were members of the Quill Club who paid their dues, whether they supported me or not, or my administration or not, because it was the right trade union thing to do. They weren't the heroes. The heroes were the scabs who were not paying their dues. That's who they elevated in the newspapers as heroes. Okay. This, this time I have to say he's lying, not just that he's mistaken. And since he, I know he brought up this question of uh, leaflets put out um, uh, by Samuelson and the workers in, in track before, and it is simply what, it's just not true. There was, it doesn't, plus it doesn't make sense. If your goal is to win an election to replace Roger and his people, you want the people who are dissatisfied and pissed off to be paid up in their dues so they can vote. So the idea that you discourage people from voting so that only the, the most loyal union members and, and Roger's supporters are the ones who can vote makes no sense. But the fly, um, I was elected chair of the train operators in 2006. Um, so I was elected in the, the months before the dues checkoff was suspended and was chair throughout the period that the dues checkoff was suspended. Um, Believe me, if I had put out any piece of literature which encouraged people not to pay their dues, I would have been removed. I would have been brought up in charges and removed. I didn't do that, nor did John Samuelson. We did put out flyers. That, you know, we said we encouraged people to pay their dues. The union had to survive. We had to stand up against this attack from management. Um, yes, we wanted people to, if they were dissatisfied with this leadership, you know, remain a member and vote against them if you're not happy with them. Yes, we said that. Um, and uh, I know that flyers were put out saying, um, hold the officers accountable for how they spend your money. Not they're gonna waste it all on staff salaries or anything like that. Hold them accountable for how they spend your money. Um, Ainsley Stewart, yeah, he put out something different, but he wasn't part of uh, Samuelson's team. He, you know, there was somebody putting that stuff out you know, what do you say? You can't, you can't, I'm not by any means defending what he did. Okay, um, those flags will, get, will be produced. Was, Both Samuelson's flags um, and Mr. Dong's writing. Uh, I was a member of the Quill Club. 
So I'm glad that Roger considers me a hero. Um, but I, so the Quill Club were people who paid up six months or a year in advance to make sure that the money, money was there, the local, that the union had the money. I was a member of the Quill Club. Um, the, there is an important, also, just, just to be clear, and I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, um, a confusion you've done before in these interviews, Roger. You did not negotiate a contract in 2008. That contract was decided by an arbitrator. Um, I was chair at that time. Um, I know what the process was. I know that there was one weekend of negotiations with, uh, with the Transit Authority, and then roughly three months before the contract expired, uh, you and, uh, what was his name, Roberts, was the president of the authority, um, petitioned for arbitration. Um, and I'm not saying you were necessarily mistaken, but, uh, hang on, I'm not saying you were necessarily mistaken to do that, because you rode DC-37's coattails. The, the raises we got in that arbitration award, we got because DC-37 had, had just settled a deal uh, with Bloomberg, and we, um, we the local, I'm not taking credit for it by any means, we the local said, let's, you know, as you said, the, the, the economic uh, con uh, recession had started, uh, bad times were coming, um, he said, let's, let's grab this while it's there. But there was not a, um, there was not a negotiation, there was not a threat of a strike, there was not a uh, threat of layoffs provoking a threat of a strike. Um, there was a, an arbitration where the Transit Authority, um, who in fact you're the one who had a very good relationship with the uh, administration of the Transit Authority under Roberts, um, jointly went to arbitration to nail down the raise that DC 37 had gotten. The Could I address that just before you move on? Just as a matter of record, and I'll produce those records as well, and by the way, for the, for the various, I'm taking note of the different issues that came up of, of, of confusion over what the record is. And folks should know that there are two locations which I'll make, and I'll make sure I'll get the information to progressive action as well. But there's a Facebook site called Transit Strike and a blog called um, 2005 New York City Transit Strike and, at WordPress in which this information will be posted. But just to, just to make it clear, the 2008 contract was negotiated. It was negotiated, and actually it was in this, on December 27th of 2008 that the Transit Authority, um, Mr. Gary De applied to arbitration, declared an impasse on the TA side and requested that arbitration after the, an, uh, an agreement had already been reached. So the subject of the arbitration was whether to uphold the agreement that had been reached or to set it aside and do something radically different. And the, to the arbitrator upheld the main tenets of the agreement, but not the entire agreement. But, there was the, but everything that the arbitrator um, ruled was part of the agreement, but not the entire agreement. Well, but it was, it was a negotiated contract, not something that um, arbit no, the arbitrator put no new language into the contract except what was negotiated in the, into that agreement by as of December 27, 2008. And that's a fact. And the record of the arbitration also 
makes that clear i will provide the record of that arbitration where the arbitrator explains how we arrived at arbitration the arbitrator himself mr zuccotti explains that i'll provide that record as well here yeah, i think mr dongs might simply be mistaken in terms of his his his, his knowledge and grasp of that history but that is in fact what the record so is. the bottom line the arbitrator did not negotiate the contract absolutely not there's no right the, absolutely not All right. there was an agreement up to up to december 27th and that this on december 27th gary de wrote to pub saying we we declaring an impasse we want to go to arbitration because he did not like the agreement right okay but there was an agreement in place between the parties at that time uh, 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 from substance right um and that's the fact so but I, I will provide that record to you just take note of these specific points yeah yeah and we'll get back to it all right mr downs with your well yeah. so, so we can agree that there was not a negotiated settlement presented to the membership for its ratification the uh what we have from 2008 is an arbitrator's award so th that that's accurate right you asking you mr tucson that the that that no agreement was submitted for approval there was the no rat correct yes okay yeah okay. Um, but there was an agreement it was a negotiated agreement that's what you said that there wasn't okay. and well, real quick as long as we're um, uh, plugging our our sites I just want to mention that uh, I've written a small booklet on the experience of new directions on the uh, transit strike of 2005 uh, it's called hell on wheels the success and failure of reform in transport workers union local 100 and if anybody wants a copy Write me at downs100 at gmail, and I will send you a copy. Well, why, you, why, you ain't bring, why, you, why you ain't bring the host a copy? Thank you, sir. There you go. <laughs> now, you mentioned something about, um, you know, uh, if you would have did any wrongdoing as far as putting out pamphlets telling people not to, uh, to, to uh, pay their union dues or whatever, that you would have been brought up on charges and removed, basically. Mm -hmm. Now... <clears throat> During this last election, there was a forgery of signatures mm -hmm. by Donald Yates, and he's still around. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Because, I mean, I, I figure handing out pamphlets is, is more innocent than forging signatures. I agree with you. But I, my point was simply that, that um, I certainly would not have been allowed to remain in that position if I was encouraging people to not pay their dues. That's not... It's not a question of handing out literature that would have brought down the punishment. It would have been encouraging people to not pay their dues. All right, but um, how do and you... And I think that, Frank, I think that that, encouraging people to not pay their dues, is a more serious infraction than Donald's. Um, I don't think what Donald did is all right, by any means, um, but... Is it a removable offense? Um, in your opinion? In my opinion, it is not. Please explain. Yeah, that's fine. I think that uh, it is, first, it, it's, it's a violation of the election rules. And the local had uh, a, a monitor who's, who, in, who Barbara, ruled on that. Barbara, Barbara Donahue. Donahue, yeah. And her ruling was that um, this was wrong. It shouldn't, you know, clearly these are forgeries. They're not going to be counted. But it didn't have any effect on the election. It didn't have any effect on who could be nominated. It didn't have any effect on who was on the ballot. Uh, and she said if it, had, if it could have had that effect, she might have taken more drastic action. But it didn't affect any of that. So in my opinion, um, it gave Donald's opponents a stick to beat him with. 
and I'm sure they did. Um, nevertheless, the members voted him into office. And, uh, you know, given that it happened in the course of election, I think that you let the members make that call. Did the members think that this was such that it uh, disqualified him from being a chair? It's not a vi violation of election rules. It was not, you know, you certainly probably could stretch some aspect of the bylaws, but it's not a clear-cut violation of anything except the election rules, which Dinehart ruled on. So for our understanding. Just, just let me make a quick point here. In the case of MTA bus, the officers at tribe, the, what is the old tribal depot, which is now called the Lagarde Depot, two of them, Jack DeSena and Marjorie, they were removed from office after the members elected them, after the members made that call that that's who they wanted to represent them. Because of an allegation that, that two raffle tickets were sold during a, a street barbecue outside the depot that, they, that were contributed, that they claim was contributed by a workers' compensation attorney. Barbara Dinehart dealt the, the monitor dealt with that matter and made some type of ruling. And then in a, in a double jeopardy move, Mr. Samuelson and Dong's, and Dong's people brought charges against Jack DeSena, who's the chairman of, of, um, of, of Triborough, and Marjorie, the recording secretary, and had them removed from office and, re and stripped of the right to run for office for a year. And this is after the members had elected them into office. So what I'm saying here is that there's a double standard here when you, when you, on the, when you oppose or you're critical of Mr. Samuelson and Mr. Downs. Different things happen to you. Bad things happen to you. <laughs> um, I, I think I can understand why Roger would bring that up and, and say that those were equivalent. I don't think they are. What Donald did was a violation of the election rules um, and uh, a violation that had no effect. Um, what Mr. DeSena did um, was arguably, and it was presented to the executive board, it went beyond that. It involved taking an employer's contribution in the election. The, Barbara Dinehart did rule on that, and she ruled that it was a violation, and she ruled that excuse me, the money that um, was received should be, I believe it was paid into the Widows and Orphans Fund, um, which to the best of my knowledge hasn't been done. But that involvement of management in a union election is, uh, is a more serious offense than, um, than Donald's uh, and was treated as such not only by Darnhart, but then charges were brought to the executive board and were dealt with. So Donald's case is basically done with then? Yes. So that gag order that he said he claimed he has is a lie? I don't know, I don't know if he has said that, so I can't <laughs> say that. <laughs> anyway, you should have MTA bus people come on this show to explain what happened, uh, which will contradict what Mr. Dongs just said. Yeah. The, also, Jack it, should out that it should be pointed out that the, um, the petitioning, the offices for which you petition for are, are governed by rules established by the Department of Labor, right, by the um, Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act. Um, so there was also the recourse of going, filing a complaint at the DOL if people were dissatisfied with how it was handled by Local 100. Uh, I don't know if that was done. My guess is it wasn't. I haven't heard about anything about it. Um, the, the Mr. DeSena's position and, and uh, Marjorie's are not governed by the LMRDA and the Department of Labor. So the local um, was the last, re, last possible recourse. 
Mr. Toussaint, let me ask you a question. If that would have happened up under your administration, what would have you done? What? what? The forgery of signatures. That had happened in previous, in previous elections. Um, in, under the, in the 2000 election, um, there was hundreds of false signatures by supporters of the Willie James slate um, that were, I can't remember how that was resolved, but there were hundreds of false signatures. Um, and then in the 2003 elections, there were hundreds of um, false signatures again by the slate that ran against us. Um, whatever, no action was taken outside of what the election monitor um, decreed at the time. I, be, I can't recall exactly what the, what the, what the penalty was, but, the, but it was confirmed that there were false, yeah. um, false signatures. Right. So what happened, Donald, was consistent with that. The signatures were not allowed. The individuals who were responsible for the forgeries were not disqualified from running. Okay. So, so it's a, it's a con whether it was, anyway, the, the, the treatment of Donald if, was I consistent. I don't know if that's, I will not confirm that that is what in fact occurred. But you won't deny it either, right? Won't confirm or deny. No. You don't know. Excuse me. I will not confirm that what he just said is what occurred. Okay. Now, um, uh, uh, I, I would like to bring up something very controversial about the 2005 strike, if I can. Yeah. I see we're running. We're in our last half hour. No, we good. Don't worry about it. No, we good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, look, I think I want to be uh, as, as clear as I can be. I was proud to strike. I was glad we did it. Glad we finally did. I've got a I've got a picket sign from the strike hanging in my living room. Um, but I do not uh, accept the story that is put out that the strike was about uh, management's demand for a new pension tier. I think that is a uh, rewriting of what actually happened. But tell us, what, tell us what you think happened. I'll tell you what I think. I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't in the room all the time, but I'll tell you what I think, and I'll tell you why I think it. Okay. Um, it has been presented, uh, I don't think there's any dispute that um, management presented a demand for a new pension tier on the night uh, before the contract was supposed to expire. That's been presented here, been presented more than once by, more than once by Roger. Um, I also don't think there's any dispute that what, what that demand really means, um, because the, the pension isn't contractual, uh, and it is, uh, we're act it's actually illegal for us to negotiate a pension mm -hmm. under the Taylor Law. So what that demand really was, was a demand that the union accompany the MTA to Albany to seek a new tier, right? Um, and again, that, I think it's important that the timing matters here because that was um, supposedly given to the union the day before the contract expired. Since it's not something that, it's not a mandatory subject of bargaining, we could have just said, no, we're not talking about that. And there is, uh, uh, if we had been forced into arbitration, the authority could not have said to the arbitrator, we're talking pension. We could have simply said no. Okay. The authority could then certainly have said, we're going to Albany on our own, whether you agree with this or not. I, you know, they, they could do that. 
And then the union has to make an assessment of what happens in Albany, what, what fight they would engage in. Um, I think, given the history up to that point, it is very unlikely that Albany would have, the assembly specifically, the Democrats in the assembly, would have given Pataki that, that win for him. They wouldn't have uh, turned against the unions, given Pataki that win as he's setting himself up to run for president. So that's, that's my you know, frame of that. But what's more important to me is that in the, uh, in the weeks after the, co after the contract was revealed, because as you know it was, we didn't know what, what it was when the strike ended. But when the weeks after the contract was revealed, um, the local scheduled a number of borough meetings for Roger to present the facts of the contract, take questions, have debate, whatever. Um, I, attended, was, I attended the meetings in Brooklyn, uh, which was at the Brooklyn Y, and at the Bronx, um, I think it was at the uh, Bronx Community College, if I recall. So at the meeting, in the, the Brooklyn meeting was the first meeting. At that meeting, uh, in, in discussing what led up to the strike, Rogers said um, that the local had conducted uh, polling, surveying of members. They'd hired a company that does telephone surveys. And they had conducted a survey of the members. And they had come to the conclusion that the members would not accept a contract that was not the product of a strike. I, mean, I, was, I was really struck by that in Brooklyn. Um, the members would not accept a contract that was not the product of a strike. That decision had been reached before the final day of negotiations, before the Transit Authority presented their demand regarding the pension. I, I frankly thought I must have, you know, I must not have heard it right. I went to the meeting in the Bronx, and he said the same thing with the exact same language. So whether he realized it or not, what he told us was that he and, and whoever it was he was consulting with had come to the conclusion that the members, that the only way to get a contract passed was to have a strike. That if there wasn't a strike, if the members didn't believe that everything possible had been done, they would reject the contract. So the strike was about framing, as Roger has described them, the manageable concessions and, and doing what he thought was necessary to ensure that the members would accept them. So that, again, that decision, the, the authority came into negotiations looking for concessions. There's no question about that. Um, the main thing they were talking about um, in terms of the, the big monetary ones was that the members start paying a significant premium of, of, of their medical benefits. Um, but already, before anything was, a word with, was breathed about pension changes, the local had come to the conclusion that they needed to have a strike to sell a contract. So this strike was, to the members on the picket lines, this strike was about, you know, getting back at management. This was about standing up and saying, you know, we're, we're sick of it, we're tired, we're going to show what we can do, we're going to show our power, and people were thrilled, and I was thrilled. And I was thrilled uh, by Roger's 
um, remarks carried on the radio after Bloomberg said his comment about the thuggish behavior of the strikers. Well, how did you feel about that? How did I feel about what? Before you go on there, before you go on there, I mean, I need to be able to respond to this stuff, this construct that he's. He put a construct there before you go on to the thug business. That's going to the. That's a separate issue. I want you to. I'm asking you to hold that separate. Let me address what he just said. He he put a construct around what what motivated the strike. I need to respond. Ah, you respond to that. All right. So first of all, he's completely wrong, and I would have to be totally reckless. If I made, if our my administration made a decision ahead of time to go on strike regardless of what happened, that is absolutely not what occurred and absolutely wrong. But what is first, what is interesting first of all, is that Mr. Dongs is very proud and he has a placard of a strike that he says was unnecessary, that should not have occurred for the reasons it occurred. So I don't know what he's proud of. Why would you be proud of a strike that's unnecessary? I'll, I'll be happy to answer. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Right? But he's proud of it. Now, I'll tell you <clears> this. <throat> Mr. Dungs did not always say that the strike was unnecessary. In 2006 and 2007, what he was saying is that the strike was good, but the deal was bad. Um, or that we should have, we came back too early. We should have stayed out more. Nope. Right? In the in the in the um in the in, in later on, Mr. Dung's uh, meaning more recently Mr. Dung has, has argued that this they make this argument. The strike was a was a waste and it was unnecessary. Now, with respect to what he's talking about as far as the, the pension demand goes, you should know that pension issues have always been part of the negotiations between the parties. For as long as I have been on this job, in the, the, we have 2555 because of the 1994 contract that was written into the 1994 contract as the parties agree to jointly support a 2555 contract, right? It was re, the, the, the contribution was, re, was reduced in the 1999 contract. Let me get my, some of my dates wrong because pension was again a topic. The parties agreed to reduce the contribution to 2% from 3%, right? In this round of negotiations, as in all round of negotiations, there are contract demands. Now, what is true, technically speaking, is that you are, you are not supposed to, it's not illegal, but it's not, it, it, it's not a mandatory subject of bargaining. One side cannot make it a mandatory subject of bargaining, right? So here is, here is how it works, and here is how this worked. The MTA came, with, came on the, just on the eve of the expiration of the contract within hours, within the last hour, and presented this as part of their final offer. Right? On the face of it, to present a, a pension change as part of a final offer you meaning you're trying to make it mandatory you know, to reach a settlement, that ought to be legal. So what we did is we went to court, we filed an injunction in the state Supreme Court, and we said, here is the law, here is what they did. We asked in the state Supreme Court to declare this illegal and to enjoin the MTA from, from doing this. The state courts refused to do that, refused to apply the law, 
as we saw it and as it actually is. So, the, so we did that before we, we made a decision. We went to the state Supreme Court, and that's a matter of record. And I think I've provided some of those records to you all. And put that down, I'll provide those records again. We, right? Mm -hmm. So here is how this works. The, if this matter goes to, an arbitration, goes to arbitration, then the arbitrator has many options available to him, him or her. The arbitrator could rule that while pensions are not a mandatory subject of bargaining, the MTA has made, an, an, a, made a claim that it's unable to pay the wage increases unless it gets this kind of pension relief. And therefore, we, pending a, res, a resolution of that matter, we will, we will, the arbitrator will reduce the wage settlement in order to provide, so they can't impose the pension, but they can reduce the wage settlement to account for the pension shortfall for the in, for for the um if it if if it buys the the mta's argument and that is likely where where it would go especially since the governor was indicating that, that that's what that's where he was going and the courts were already indicating that they were disinterested in um in intervening to block the mta from insisting upon pension as a final um as a as part of their final offer so so it was very much an issue that the mta had presented this as their final offer this is this was presented to the executive board as they presented it right and the executive board discussed it and made a decision to call it to to, to go to um to call the strike but this, but that, that is in fact how it how it unfolded. And the last thing, the last thing that I would do is go out on strike if it is unnecessary. And what Mr. Dongs is doing is what he sits down doing, which is what he has done all his life, is sit down and listen for little birdies in his ear that he can seize upon and jump around and say, "Ah, I got you," right? So he hear me talking to my to members, and I'm saying to them that we did a lot of stuff in the lead up to this contract fight. We polled members, we organized, we did shop steward, we marched, we did days of action, we did mac attacks, attacking the, the clinics and so forth. And in the polling of the members, here is some of the information that we got in terms of where the members' heads were at, right? We polled the public as well to determine what the level of their support. We polled them before the strike, we polled them during the strike, ABC News polled them during the strike because we were trying to fly with radar. And I'm reporting to the members, here is what the reports said. Because one of the things that you got to do as you go into battle is you got to have a clear sense of how far your members are prepared to go. Right? If you, have, if you, if you don't have ways to tell how far the members are prepared to go, what their level of participation is, what their level of commitment is, then you will not be operating with the data that you need to make the correct decisions. Right? So that was so that polling was part of the process of, of, of determining exactly where the members were. Now you contrast that to what they did. Six months before the 2012 contract expired, they announced that the deadline was, was, was inconsequential and it meant nothing. The, the result of the, as a result, transit workers waited two years before a contract was, was resolved in 2014. Because they declared ahead of time 
that they were that, that the deadline meant nothing. Not that I'm saying that they should have announced that they were threatened to strike or go on strike, but going to the table, you want as much leverage as possible. That's if you're in the business of fighting. If you're in the business of fighting, whether it's on the street or in the schoolyard or on the on the on on the on on, on the public theater in New York against Wall Street, the mayor, the governor, and so on, you want to come to the table with as much leverage as possible. There's no sound reason why you would take away your leverage and you and, and assure your opponent of what you wouldn't do. We didn't do that in 2008 and 2009 when we were negotiating a contract. <clears throat> we didn't say, even though the, the strike was just three years old, we didn't say we were not going to strike. We didn't do that. Why would you take away your own leverage? That's what these guys did. Because they had no intention to have to, to engage in a serious fight. That's, that's the profile of people that are not into fighting. And not to mention, 2005, it was nothing but Republicans. Yeah, we went up against... Nothing but Republicans where? Keep, keep, the, the assembly was, the, was Democrats. No, no, no. And Pataki, they Pataki, knew Pataki was Republican. Bloomberg was a Republican. was going to want to run for president. They are not giving him that gift. But that, you know, we'll no, never no. know. It didn't no, no, happen. no, no. We so, went up against a Republican administration. No, no and, and, and it was Local 100 alone with... Um, with the ATU locals in Queens and Staten Island. And we blocked the imposition of a tier six pension. And, and all of Mr. Dong's fancy words, the reality today is that transit workers right now, about um, since it was imposed in 2012, right now about 8,000. And in the next five, 10 years, f seven years, it's going to be the majority of transit workers are going to have a tier six pension. So for all Mr. Dungs has said, the reality is that life has changed under Mr. Dungs and Samuelson. You have a tier six pension, and they had the opportunity of, of getting together with all of the unions to fight um, Albany. We stood up to Albany and to Bloomberg and blocked it, and he's saying here that that, was, that fight was a waste, but somehow miraculously on their watch, since they know how to do these things, they end up with a tier six pension. Let me ask you something, Mr. Downs. Um, Sam recently mentioned something about 25-55 was a victory. Was that ever on the table with the, uh, the new pension? Let's be clear. The pension was not contractual, right? Everything's done in Albany. So what was on the table in Albany was a reversion to a 3062 pension with the added contributions and the other things that happened. So um, this local... Uh, almost uniquely was able to prevent an increase in years of service or age. Every, you know, cops, sanitation, DC 37, firefighters, they all uh, are not only paying the extra, which were, you know, which our members got stuck with too, um, but got years of service. Only, only two um, years. They two went, years. went from 20 to 22. All right. You know, it's, they, they got an increase. We, we didn't. We stopped that from happening. So the fight we have clearly is about the contribution. Um, look, at the, the, I, I want to remind people that at the time before the contract expired in 2005, well before the contract expired in 2005, the authority said, we have a billion-dollar surplus. They never, you know. They don't usually say that before going into negotiations. They usually say, we're broke, we have a deficit, we need givebacks. They said, we have a billion dollar surplus and you're not getting any of it. 
Um, so it wasn't about their pleading broke and they can't afford this and they can't afford that. You know, I'm, I'm, willing, I'm willing to take Roger at his word. He didn't say we pulled the membership and they said they're ready to fight, they're ready to strike. They, Roger's words were the members said they would not accept, they came to the conclusion, I don't know what they said, they came to the conclusion the members would not accept a contract that was not the product of a strike. So that strike was about what will be the shape of the concessions and how do we sell it to the membership. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to go back and forth. Again, so, he stated his position I, ad, ad nauseum. Um, I've I, stated mine. People can draw their own conclusions. I would, but I would I, like I to address what he said about the, oh, 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 20, the 2012 negotiations and, and announcing in advance that there, the, the January 15th, 2012 is not a deadline. Um, and I think there is a, uh, a very simple explanation that we didn't want to lie to the members. We're not going to fool the TA into giving us a good contract. We're not going to bluff at the table when all of the other big state and city unions have made massive concessions. And we're not going to lie to the members. It was better to say, look at this is, we are on our own in this fight. Look at what CSEA just agreed to. This is in the summer of uh, 2011. Look at what CSEA just agreed to. Look at what PEF just agreed to. Look at what all these other unions are agreeing to. We're not going to agree to that. But we're not going to pretend that we're going to be able to settle a contract January 15th just because we stamp our feet and say, oh, we're going to strike. Nobody's going to take that seriously. The members wouldn't take it seriously. We wanted the members to be prepared for the fight that it was going to take to actually get a contract that um, was better, was not only just better, but was in the, in the context in which the negotiations were taking place and what everybody else settled for ahead of us and what everybody settled for behind us our contract is, uh, is better than any of them. It's not the world's best contract, no. But, it, but it's better than anything and, and so, so imagine what would happen on January 15th if we hadn't prepared the members for this. We hadn't said uh, we're doing this and we're, we're organizing a campaign and so forth and so on. We get to January 15th, we got three choices, right? We can strike, which nobody sitting around this table thinks was uh, a viable possibility. We can say, oh, never mind. Um, we didn't mean it, we'll just keep talking, and then we get hammered by, you know, people in this room and, and many others for you, saying, you said that there was a deadline, and now you're backing off the deadline. Or we would have been in arbitration, and at arbitration in January of 2012, we would have gotten stuck with the givebacks, the, the um, three years with no raises, the huge increases in contribution for medical benefits that CSEA and PEF had accepted. Do you, do you think it would be a coincidence that, um, We'll probably get our uh, contract negotiated after January this year, probably after the international elections. When, well, Do I expect that to happen? Yeah. No. Because I, I don't think Samuelson will want to um, upset anybody before the international elections. Just my assumption. That's fine. Which, by the way, as a matter of record, um, the CSA contract was negotiated. Was the CSA, the, 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 one, the zeros? came after the expiration of the local 100 That's, that's just not true, Roger. It was July of 2011 that they made their deal. It just, no. it just is. It's, you know, let's not argue about it. Somebody can look it up if they want to. Can somebody, um, I mean, we could, we could, we could post yeah. it later. Can I, can I address one real, one thing that's come up here sure, in a number ahead, of interviews. I want to be just, it, it kind of disturbed me because it's, um, partly because I don't know what people are talking about. But uh, you've asked the question, other people have, you know, sort of not committed themselves to it, but they sort of, you know, go along with it. 
you, you've asked about, is the local insolvent? You've asked about that a few times. And, um, I asked that? Yes. Um, and what you said is things, something like, I hear people say that the local is insolvent. Is that true? Something like that. I never and, said that. Uh, well, I mean, but you, I, got, you could say your point. <laughs> you know, I, I apologize if, if it was you. I'm pretty sure it was you, but regardless. But it has come up here in, uh, in previous interviews. And all I want to do is just refer people to the LM2. The LM2 is a document that the, uh, the local has to file every year with the federal government, um, listing who's on staff, what the expenditures were, what the um, income was from dues, income from other sources. I mean, it's a really pretty extensive report on the local's finances. And according to, and it was just printed, just published about a month ago. No, I got it. Okay. I got it. So if that makes it clear that the local has um, uh, the assets over liabilities, it's $10 million. I mean, it's not remotely close to being insolvent. It's $10 million in assets over liabilities. Um, so let's just put that to rest, please. And, and just one very you know, small point that Roger brought up about uh, what percentage of the members were in good standing when, um, when we took office. He's disputing my saying it's 50%. I just, you know, it was 50%. But more, you know, more to the point is the, the, this administration has, has made those numbers public, put them up on the screen at the, at the mass membership meeting, prepared flyers to get them out. The numbers of people in good standing has been made public. The numbers of people who, get, who catch up in their dues afterward has been made public. This local established a, a program where people can double up on their dues. We got the transit authority to agree um, and people can sign up to voluntarily get caught up by simply doubling up on their dues. Those figures have been made public. So, um, you know, I mean, Roger is sort of free and easy with the innuendos about, in, about stuff being hidden and the, the information out there, and it's just not true. I, I want you to, because, you know, I look at the LM2s, and I look at a, a section called the, um, hold on, the uh, disbursements for official business. Okay. What could be, what, what are those charges? Are those like credit cards? Like, what, what exactly is those disbursements of official business? Uh, does it say anything else underneath it? I mean, I'm not. I mean, it just say, it just say numbers. Okay. Um, it is, I'm not the Secretary Treasurer. I don't draft these documents. Um, so I see, all I see is what gets published on the, by the federal government. Okay. So my guess is that somewhere there is a document that, um, that itemizes them and it's condensed into that slot. But, but charges are itemized, cars expenses are itemized. Um, so all I, can, all I can guess is that those in fact, those are, those are uh, money that was paid out to pay for um, room, meeting room rentals, if that was necessary, for um, travel for officers, to, for um, uh, the leadership training program at Cornell. I mean, it could be any number of things. I'd, I'd be guessing. Oh, um, now, can, now, can I ask you something, Steve? This, sure. is, this goes back to the solvency of the union and the, and the financial state. I read those LM2s for current LM2s, and I didn't see any, under the investments, I didn't see any investments. So what I want to know is, is there anybody on staff, because you're the chief of staff, is there anybody on staff in the union who could um, make investments in the, in the market in any shape, form, or fashion to build up the, you know, union's money? 
I mean, there is not, the, the union does not actively play the stock market. You can, we be, you know, we, you win, you lose, it's just not something we do. There are, there are, um, uh, there are investments they buy treasury bonds, you know, to, to protect the money while it's not being used, I and mean, that's, that's done, and I think you'd actually, um, you know, I may, I'm surprised that that doesn't, it's not reflected in this year's LM2. I've seen it in past year's LM2. So how does the union make money? As far as how do you make their money get interest? How do we, the, the, the local money comes primarily from dues. Dues. Yeah. Oh, because the more it seems like that's added on, it takes away because, you know, I've seen some in the LM2s from Nebraska Steakhouse, almost a $6,000 bill, which I feel that's kind of crazy, erratic, to see my money going to a steakhouse. You know, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I also don't know what that bill was for, like how many people were there, what was the union, what was the union purpose in, clearly we treated probably out, you know, out of state or out of country visitors to dinner. I don't know how many people were involved, you know. I, I mean, I when, we, bad when, too. When, when we throw, po when I graduated the shop store, we got a little salad, we ain't had steak. You know what I'm saying? That should be used for us. Yeah, but pasta it, too. Yeah, don't pasta too, don't yeah. forget. <laughs> but, um, like I was looking at the LM2s earlier and I seen that uh, the mass membership meeting at the Manhattan Center was like 70 some thousand dollars. And we already know, everybody could agree in this room, there hasn't been a mass membership meeting up under Samuelson as we, we seen with prior administration with Mr. Toussaint. And why would we spend so much money on a space where we know we can't fill it? And under, I looked at uh, Toussaint 2008 LM2s he spent a total of 30-something thousand for four dates, where Sam Yusin spent 70-plus thousand for two dates. I th it's two. Uh, this local has had meetings at the Javits Center. The Javits Center's more expensive than Manhattan Center. I didn't see that we on had, the own. We've had, by this local, I mean oh, the, over the, the last... Okay. 15 years okay right so javits center has cost a lot we've had at the marriott i mean we all, we look for spots the there was a uh, sentimental reason to have at the manhattan center this last year because that site was so linked to the history of this local and the 1966 strike so a part of the commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the 66 strike was to hold the meeting in the same place that the local had held its, but the, held its meeting at that time the jacob javits center you would say is more expensive than the manhattan center yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on how much space you're, you're getting, but there have, been, there have been meetings that this local has had at Javits Center, which had, you know, the 2005 mass membership meeting probably had, I don't know, 7,000 people there, the meeting I was at. It was huge. What about the ones this um, year? How there have been meetings that, this, that were held under Roger's administration where there were 400 people at the mass membership meeting. So it, it can, I was not happy, you know, there can be better turnout. Um, and I and I hope that there will be better turnout. You seen that look he gave you? He like man, when was four hundred people held up on the mark? He's, you know, he's entitled. <laughs> you know, we're we're both getting old. We're both forgetting stuff. But, uh, I, mean, but I was at those meetings. You, you know, I want to revert back to something that you said about um, you got the, the 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 strike placket hanging on your wall, but you're not happy about it. And I'm gonna tell you why I don't believe. I I found an article online. By the um, Solidarity, a socialist, feminist, anti-racist organization. You familiar with that? I'm very familiar with it. Okay, because you wrote this article. Um, it says, the, the December 2005 strike was a historic event. Transit workers showed that workers still have the power and the will to fight.
but because the strike was called to blow off steam and win ratification of givebacks, it was not carried through a successful conclusion. And the strike showed that poor planning and leadership will doom even the most effective strike. While some local 100 members have confidence in Tucson, many who proudly participated on the picket lines now wonder if they were fools to do so. Some looking at the, the fines and givebacks question the wisdom of fighting back at all. Now, Couldn't have you, said it better myself. All right. So are you considered a fool for having that thing on your wall? You called them a fool. I didn't and, call and, them a fool. Read that again. You said. I didn't say they were fools. I said, they're wondering themselves. Are you thinking was I a fool for doing that? So you could, you could, you could, call, you could say members, members told you that then? Yeah. Or you was thinking that for them? No, I've talked to people. I okay. was there on the picket line with but them. I, I, was, don't, I, don't, I was there in the crew rooms after, afterwards when we voted. I can't find no literature of you saying anything positive about the strike, but you got the thing hanging on your wall. Like, what kind of memory is that? I think what you just read says something positive about the strike. It says something negative about the resolution of the strike and the contract that we were presented with and the aftermath. I think it says something. I don't know how you can read that and, you said, and, and you, say it's not positive. The only thing you could say is workers still have the power and will to fight. But it's a whole, you saying the negative, I mean, you saying the positive than the negative. Okay. So life's complicated. Those two things fit together. I don't understand why you got to hang it on your wall, honestly. <laughs> it just don't make sense to me. I wouldn't have nothing like that hanging on my wall that I wasn't proud of. I, but I was proud of the strike. I don't have a copy of the contract hanging on my wall. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's proud of a strike that should not have occurred because it was unnecessary. No, it was necessary. It shouldn't have occurred on the basis that you, that you say it was, it was called for. Anyway, and it should have we, been led in a serious way. We it should transit. have been prepared. We, you should have had picket sites. You should have had picket captains trained. We had all of that. We Bullshit. had all of that. Not in RTO, you didn't. We had all of that. Not in RTO, you didn't. I mean, the I fact didn't. that you all were undermining the strike and, telling, and, and discouraging people, notwithstanding, but the strike was organized and it was all over the system and... We'll carry those records on the online on the on the sites that I mentioned. Now I have a question from a uh, from a, um, from a, um, somebody from Facebook. Um, this is a question for Steve. Um, at the election count, when they were counting the votes, um, is a, a person is claiming that while everybody else was put out of the room. You were, the only, you were one of the few people who were left in the room with Samuelson. They want to know, is that true? No. I wasn't in the room and Samuelson wasn't in the room. Neither one of us was in the room. I, w I was sitting on my ass out in the hallway. So who was actually in the room? I don't know. Okay. I heard that from uh, a few people myself. Okay. Well, they I'm not, I have no position to say what you might have heard. If they told you I was in the room, they were mistaken. Did you know people got kicked out of the room? Yes. All right. Okay, now I have a question for Roger, and, and this is from the same person. They want to know um, the cleaner's assault bill. Um, let me see. They want to know the cleaner's assault bill why wasn't it put in from the start along with the station agents? Along with the other titles? Um, 
not exactly clear on what that is, but um, the well, way the sorry. Also, you know, the assault bill that you had. Yeah, uh, I remember the assault bill. So yeah. they want to know why wasn't the cleaners put on there from jump okay. along with the other titles, basically. So the initial draft of the bill had cleaners, station agents, and um, all titles that would come in contact with, um, with, um, with, the, with members of the public. And um, we will, I mean, I'm talking about in the very initial assault bill, I can't remember what year it was. Um, and that was running into a lot of problems, not only with the Republicans in Albany, but quite frankly, with the Democrats in Albany. And um, they were very disinclined to support any type of you know, assault legislation on the grounds that it would lead to, um, to, to a lot of arrest and mostly of people of color in the communities and so forth. So there was strong opposition actually to, among the Democrats. So we had to do this, we had to do the, the assault bill in a piecemeal manner and we use the, the strongest case could have been made for the operator titles, bus operator, train operator, conductor. And then after that, we got the, um, the station agents and the cleaners sometime after. Um, but that is the, that is the it, it, we had to craft the bill in that way in order to get it by. We, there's no way we could have done it at the time um, um, with station agents and cleaners. There was resistance to that. Okay. Um, um, Mr. Downs, you could tell me what's up with the Women's Committee? you have any, any uh, info on that, knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot. I do know that um, they are uh, reactivating it. Um, I, you know, actually, I think that Anita, when she was here a couple of weeks ago, sort of framed the, the problem or the, the challenge of the Women's Committee very well. Um, and, you know, she said that different things were tried and they worked, they didn't work, and then they finally hit on the right formula. Um, and that she, you know, she talked about her, her role in that. Um, and I think that this, um, this administration has been going through a similar process of, tr you know, trying things and they don't work and they, for whatever reason, and, and they're different things depending on what the, th you know, different reasons depending on, on the incarnation and who's involved in it. But they, but they keep trying, and they're trying to get right, and they are reactivating the, um, uh, the committee. Um, but I think it's also worth keeping in mind that just as with, uh, under Rogers' administration, under this administration, it's, it is not as if all things women are, that the women's committee is, that that's the extent of the locals' effort to address the problem of women on the job, uh, to have on the job, or to develop women as leaders and potential officers. Um, so, uh, the stewards program is part of that, the sending of uh, uh, officers to different kinds of training and involving them in different um, uh, coalitions and such. And I'm actually quite proud that in this, this last election in RTO, RTO now has more women officers at the division or executive board than any other department in the local. And, and I think that's great. I'm quite proud of that. And I don't take, I'm not saying that's down to me. I yeah. think that the local has created an atmosphere where uh, as people get, show interest and get involved and they're encouraged and they're supported and they're developing as, as genuine leaders within the department. Who, who developed the um, tuition reimbursement? 
that was developed by the uh, Training and Upgrade Fund. Um, Charlie Jenkins, uh, uh, I believe, was the primary, um, you know, person who shepherded, who, who led, who got that through. Oh, and we were trying to figure out, coming here, do, do the MTA dump money into that, or is it, that's just the union thing? No, there's money from the MTA. Oh, okay, that's cool. Okay, so I have a question now as far as um, the upcoming contract. Our con of course, you know our contract expires in January. Mm -hmm. So what are the plans or what is the strategy that's going to be used to um, try to meet the deadline? And, you know, what are some of the demands, if, you're, um, if you have knowledge of them, that uh, Samuelson and uh, other people in the contract committee want to um, go after in this upcoming contract? Because Nick Bedell, Nick Bedell said that Sam is going after money this contract. Yeah, I mean, John said that at the mass membership meeting in December that that was going to be a priority was to get a, uh, you know, a, a sizable raise. So there's no, you know, there's no news there. In terms of other demands, the the process laid out in the bylaws hasn't been, um, hasn't kicked in yet, and I and uh, and it's a, uh, improper. I think it's inappropriate for me as a retired member to say this is what I think the demand should be. I mean, the demands are going to be formulated by... No, you can say your opinion. Which, what do right, you think? What, what no, do you but think I'm, not, I'm not going to talk about demands. I just, I just don't think I should. It's not my call anymore. I don't have a say in that anymore. In terms of organizing for the, for the contract, as Chief of Staff, I'm going to have a role in that. And the local has already started that process. I think you know that there's a um, uh, local-wide, or I, I should say MTA-wide, canvas of membership taking place right now, um, which is beyond the scope of contract surveys that have been done in the past. It includes some items on contracts, but it also is looking to uh, engage the members in a real discussion about, um, you know, how, how do they feel about the union right now? How are we doing? And what would it take to do better? And to what extent are members interested in getting more involved? Um, you know, it, it asked them if they want to uh, participate in well, you know, rallies or uh, lobbying or picketing, whatever it might be, and how many hours they're willing to get. So that's, that's all a part of the process of getting, of, you know, getting started and mobilizing for the contract. So you're trying to tell me if Samuelson asks you as a friend an opinion or suggestions, you go tell him the same answer that you just told me? Because he's asking you for opinion. I'm just asking you for your opinion. Your, your opinion is in law. I don't understand why you can't say it. I, I, if, if John asked... I can't imagine John coming to me and say, Steve, what do you think we should bargain for? If he did, I would say, go talk to the officers in RTO. So he don't come to you for no advice? I mean, you are a retired worker. I, I am saying that he wouldn't ask me what we should bargain for. He has officers, elected officers, who are going to be responsible for bargaining and who are going to be held accountable for the job they do. I'm accountable to Samuelson only. They're accountable to the members. So they're the people he's going to be talking to about what the contract um, package demand should be. Do, do you got an office at the condo? Yes. Okay. You, how you feel about that union hall? I think uh, I, I have been really surprised by the amount of time you all have spent talking about um, been listening the, to our the shows, building huh? and the condo. Um, look, the, uh, <laughs> it is, this is New York, man. Real estate is vertical. So we bought three floors of a building, you know, and we're trying to, you know, we're renting out one to raise income for the local, and we're working on the other two. 
And the, you know, I've heard people talk about it's inaccessible. Or, you know, it's, you can't members can't get in there. I said, come on, man. I mean, I I was at 80 West End when Roger had private security sitting downstairs before you got to the elevators, checking to see where you were going and before you could get up there. Um, I was at 80 West End when after you went through that, you got upstairs where you had the switchboard and you had two locked doors that the switchboard would call back and bring somebody out. And sometimes the doors were locked, sometimes they weren't. But the security and the, um, uh, the welcomeness of the current facility is uh, the welcoming is greater than it was at 80 West End most of the time. Um, is it, would I like to see a place with, um, you know, everybody has an opinion of what a good local hall should look like. You know, this is, this is what we got. And, it isn't, and for all those who are so concerned about the locals' money, it has increased in value in just a couple of years significantly as you see the development that's going on in downtown Brooklyn is increased in value. If a future leadership says, you know, let's sell this place and get someplace new, they're going to have a much bigger next egg to work with than we had when we came into office because of the amount of money that had been that Roger and his administration had spent down from the purchase of the old building. And, and I'm not I'm not questioning the expenditures. It was probably necessary because the dues check off was suspended, but. Um, in just the year before we took office, $2 million was spent out of the building fund for union administration. So the local remained solvent, you know, from 2007 to 2010 because it had this $30 million nest egg to draw on. And when we took office in, uh, and, and sort of presented this information to the executive board, people who had been on uh, Curtis Tate's team, they weren't part of Samuelson's team, who had been on the executive board in the previous administration said, shit, we didn't know, nobody ever asked us about taking money from the building fund. We didn't know this was going on. And that board then, at, 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 uh, at their behest, I think it was probably Ed Benjamin from Structure, um, voted that no money would be withdrawn from the building fund without the express uh, approval of the executive board. So. You know, we, we did the best we could with what we had, and I think it's working out well, and it is increasing in value. And, and again, if a future local leadership says this place ain't working out for us, you know, they're going to have, you know, a, a good solid piece of down, downtown Brooklyn real estate to sell and get something else. Just yeah. let me quickly comment, and because I think we're way past the two hours thing. Oh. Yeah, but still, I mean, <laughs> I've been up since four o'clock yesterday morning. Right. So when we sold AD West End, the intention was to use the money that we got out of it to create a home for transit workers that would be a functional home for the next 20, 30 years. Because the principal complaint at AD West End was that it, was, it, was, it could not provide for the needs of our members. The capacity there, if you, create, if you knock down all of the petitions, it was three or four meeting rooms. The capacity was 270 people. But we had gone into, ho into having meetings of several hundred for, um, for Black History Month or Irish Day or different, for different events. We hold a large number of events. So we ended up renting a lot of space from other unions to the 2BG and other, other locations and so forth because we couldn't even provide for the capacity 
for those for those meetings. So, um, so the so but but the other overall complaint was that the place was not um, welcoming in terms of the way the, the whole building was set up. And we wanted to have a place that would be that would be easily theming with transit workers. The transit workers would consider to be a home, and I'm talking 20, 30 years out, right? Um, if you keep that idea in mind, and then you look at 195 Montague Street, that is the furthest you can think of. No right-thinking union person will think of 195 Montague Street as a union hall that's a home for transit workers. You have the ninth floor executive offices upstairs, right? And you have, so it's three, it's three condos, separate floors, um, meetings and um, operation stuff on one floor and another floor training and upgrade fund, whatever and whatever else, right? But um, the entire atmosphere, and you should just go, just go, just go by. And, and you have been here for a number of years, so you can compare compare to what he said um, as AD Western versus here, but also with the, the compare it with what your idea of a union hall ought to be in terms of a place where you have transit workers coming back and forth. The location is, is the only thing it got going for it. Downtown Brooklyn, the Bar Hall area with numbers of trains in that area. But other, outside of that, it, it, those are executive offices. It's not a union hall. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask and, and, and by the way, and my understanding is that the reason why that, the principal reason for that site, why that site was selected, was because the, the, um, it was promised to the original date it was promised to be delivered was just before the 2012 elections. That's a date that they did not make. It ended up being, being open much later. But the, when it was initially advertised, it was going to be expected opening of November 2012 because ballots were going out in November and being counted in December. My sense is that Samuelson dumped all of the money of the local into, into that, those executive offices for the purposes of getting a leg up in the 2012 elections. Hmm. Now, what I, I want to ask about um, Samuelson's intentions um, as it comes to being um, in the international. He, he, he's in the international now and he's been there for quite some time. But, um, you know, from what I understand, um, he has basically used this local and stepped on it to get to that point, to the international. As far as um, the last contract, from my understanding, he was using stall tactics because he didn't, you know, in other, you know, he didn't have the competence or he didn't have the know-how to go in there and negotiate the contract as in it, in, as well as the union not having leverage. What do you have to say about that? Is any of that, is any of that stuff true? Did he use any stall tactics? Did he use any stall tactics? Stall tactics for the contract, yeah. Um, we bargained until we got to the point where we could get a settlement that we could recommend to the members. Um, and it took two years. Uh, you know, there was, not the there was not an opening for a settlement which would have gotten raises every year, which would have gotten improvements in medical benefits before that point. 
and uh, certainly part of that uh, that process was getting it closer to the governor's election. The governor did not want us going after him for an unsettled agreement during his election. Um, and but there was a uh, there was maneuvering. There were demonstrations. There were um, there was aggressive lobbying. There was outreach to the public. There was fights over um, restoration of uh, bus lines that had been cut. So there was we we used the tools we had and we took the time it took to get a contract that we could recommend to the members. Um, did did Samuelson you has he used the local as a stepping stone to get into the international? I mean, let me, let me flip that a little bit for you. The lo Local 100 <clears throat> is over one-third of the members of the International. It is far and away the largest local. It is over one-third of the membership. And from, and, and it should have somebody in the leadership of the International. You know, Local 100 should have a say when the International leadership meets and decides what it's going to do and how it's going to spend its money. Because a huge chunk of that money comes from us. And um, this local is more, engaged, is more politically engaged than most. I'm sure there are others that are. And is more aggressive in its dealings with um, politicians and management. We should have a say. It was, uh, the local was weakened by the fact that we didn't have anybody in the leadership of the union for a time. Um, I, I, you, you know, just a lot of what ifs. Roger is full of speculations. And so we can speculate about what would have happened during the 2005 strike if Roger had been executive vice president of the International instead of having nobody in the leadership of the International? Would the International have stabbed us in the back as they did? I kind of doubt it, but I don't know. We'll never know. But, um, you know, John Samuelson, Local 100's president, representing 40,000 members, should be in the leadership of the International. Oh, really? Um, how about the, uh, you have anything to say about the Haiti Fund scandal? Uh, I don't, I don't know about any scandal. I know about the Haiti Fund. I don't know about any scandal. Could you explain to the members about the Haiti Fund then? Sure. Uh, in the, I don't remember, somebody's going to have to, I think it was 2011, where there was an earthquake in Haiti. I actually don't remember the year. I think it was 2011. Um, the local, that was one of the times the executive board said, uh, it's appropriate to take some money from the building fund to provide for um, relief funds for those who are in Haiti seeking to recover and rebuild from the, uh, from the earthquake. And we did that. That's it. And I'm not sure what the, you know, you say scandal, I don't know what you're talking about. It seems like you got something on your mind, Mr. Toussaint. Well, I mean, we kind of bit all over. We kind of bit all over the place. That's what I'm trying to and it's past two o'clock. Oh, so we go, we go do it like this. I mean, it's, it's song as if you need to interview Steve separate from me. Oh, yeah, no. Because this is not, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, this is, this is. Okay, well, I just, okay, well, I have one more You, you can have him here on another time because <laughs> he's just doing, the, running the, his party line, so. <laughs> okay, well, I just, I just have one more question. Um. How is it possible that Samuelson could do both jobs, be the president of the local and be international executive vice president? Um, exec international executive vice president is not a full-time job in and of itself. 
right? The, the, he is the international executive vice president has certain roles to play on the international executive board, the international executive committee, but the constitution doesn't, you know, sort of define a full-time job for the international executive vice president. So he fulfills his duties as a member of those bodies, <clears throat> and he, you know, he travels to Washington as necessary, but the assignment he's been given by the rest of the leadership of the international is to, you know, to build and lead Local 100. They've, they've said, Local one, for the same reason that I say Local 100 should have somebody in the leadership of the international, they say, we want Local 100 to be strong. We want you to, you know, to pay attention and continue to lead Local 100. And when you need to be, you know, we'll call you in on, there will be phone conferences, we have uh, executive committee meetings, and he comes down to Washington or flies to wherever else they have to be. So, but his, his primary function as executive, international executive vice president is to um, see to the uh, strengthening of and well-being of local 100 members. Mr. Toussaint, I, got, I have a question for you. And you know, you could look at something in hindsight. Do you have any regrets about any personnel that you had on your, on your team that you wish you would have spotted or seen clues of something and possibly release them, especially if they was against what you were standing up for? Yeah, Samuelson and Curtis State. Primarily, those two, two names immediately come to mind as two of the biggest mistakes that I made. And what mistakes you felt that you, you made? Like, you look, you look back and you'd be like, yeah, you know, they did this and I should have did something and stepped in. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, you, what you seen back then that you felt that you should have removed them from exactly? As far as like, he did that and I ain't paid no attention to it. Well, lo long before the strike, Samuelson was conniving and scheming with various people to position himself in terms of his career move. And I was not haunted because I was, so, I was preoccupied with other stuff, including <clears throat> preparing for negotiations and preparing the, for the um, contract fight and so forth. Um, I was not focused on, on, the other, on things like that that was going on. Mm -hmm. But I called him in in early 2005 and put him on warning um, because of some of this scheming and, um, that was going on behind the backs of officers because he was in an appointed position. He was an appointed vice president, mm -hmm. right? Um, and he was involving members of the, of the, of the clerical staff in trying to help him position himself to run for office. At the time, I wasn't quite aware of how deep this was going, but back then I should have gotten rid of him. Okay. Now, another thing, do you, you know, for me, you know, race plays an issue in, in, in some things. Yeah. And do you think that Samuelson is, would you say he's for black people or do he stand by us, given the facts that the STEP program was gone, um, how he feel about the cleaners, the women, you know, the minorities? Do you think that he stands for minorities or he stands for everybody? I don't think he's a trade unionist. Okay. I think he marches to a different, to a different drummer. What drum and that has mostly to do with power and money. That's mm -hmm. what he's about. Okay. So I don't think he's loyal to, 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 to the trade union values that TWU and Local 100 ought to be guided by. Um, and that, those, that has consequence. Because if you don't have trade union values, 
then you will come down on the wrong side when it comes to making this making decisions in a non-discriminatory fashion and not having double standards and not building a union based on double standards. If you have trade union values, then you will have a sharp eye on where that line is and um and and, and don't cross it and and do things to unite unite the members um and build build solidarity rather than um rather than the other way around do things to, that ends up dividing the members i don't think that for instance that sufficient premium was is he attaches sufficient or any premium to to that issue of unity i mean the the understand that the tier six pension it is going to cripple the local for many long years to come not only in terms of the basic divide between um, people paying 2% and now people paying 3 to 6%. Mm -hmm. But even among the tier 6 uh, members, they'll be paying 3% for under 45 grand up to 6% for over 100 grand. So you have five different groupings in there. And I worry very much about how that plays out in terms of having different, different interests among our members how do you pull that pull that those members together? It's gonna to be hard. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty years. For all of the years that I was on this job, certainly in the in the eighties and nineties, the number one demand of transit workers going into contract negotiations, right or wrong, was we want twenty fifty. Twenty fifty had been lost since nineteen seventy three. And we want that. And how come the senior guys have that and we don't have that? And whether it was attainable or unattainable, that became the preoccupation for about seven rounds of negotiation. Always end up being, being in the demands among the members. Because it divided our members. And now this is, this is tier six is even worse. I mean, this, this is why our, and, our, and again, our strike prevented, give us a seven-year reprieve, blocked that from occurring in New York City or in New York State. Right, and Mr. Samuelson comes in, and the you have you know everybody got a story. He got a big, big story, a big, big explanation. But he delivered tier six on his watch, and, and and a blow that that we are going to live with for probably another seven rounds of negotiation. Seven rounds of negotiations is a generation, twenty five years, right? And that's the reality. But, but, but there are lots of other things coming down the pike. Next, next round of negotiations, the issue is going to be to block, fight to block them from extending the retirement age beyond 55. I mean, they, in other words, and they're pretending that they're going to fix, try to fix this. But the, but the pressure is on to now, to now um, move the retirement age um, from 55 to towards 62 and and the point is that once you have once you have created the all of these different interests among the members right then that that is the horse that's out of the out of the stable and going down the and, and going down the track because now you're gonna have to figure out how to play how to placate the three percenters and the four percenters and the five percenters and the six percenters um, and where that ends up is going to be, I mean, that's, but again, that occurred on his watch, <laughs> on his watch. 
And now, but they, 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 they do a maverick thing. They turn around and they blame it on me. Anything bad, blame it on Roger. If they can't fight and they're walking around like wusses, it's because Roger crippled us. <laughs> right? If you get in your ass kicked, Roger did it. Right? <laughs> if you get caught playing with credit cards, Roger didn't have rules. <laughs> have, so even though, even though we hate Roger, we were just doing what Roger did. Right? <laughs> That's what, you know, they're just following Roger rules when it suits them. And there you go. And so it's double standards and double standards and double standards and duplicity. So where's where Samuelson ends up? I mean, I have my, my personal views of where he stands on issues of race, and it is not good. But I think that he, he's a cha he champions double standards and has no trade union values. And, have, and in the conduct of the strike, I consider him to have been a scab. Wow. Now... I have a question concerning about our medical benefits. Um, is there anything that that's going to be, do you think that's going to be done to improve our medical benefits and the solvency of the HBT? And, <clears throat> well, I don't know the financial state of the HBT, so. Well, there is no HBT. Health Benefit there, Trust. There is no, no. That was one of the things that uh, was given up in the 2002 contract. Okay, so I mean, just, I'm not, whether, whether right or wrong, this HBT ceased to exist with the 2002 contract. Okay, well, I still want to know about our health benefits, and I want to know about the dental benefits, because I went to the dentist last week, and I asked him about the, uh, what, you know, which, how do you rate our current dental benefits that TWU uses, HealthPlex? And they rated it uh, on a scale of 1 to 10 or 5, those people in there, so... Uh, you know, there are better uh, companies that could be used, but I just want to know, you know, what's going to, you know, what do you think could be done to improve our benefits? Or what do you think Samuelson could do to improve the benefits? I mean, look, at every, uh, every union leadership wants to improve benefits, and that means <coughs> getting the TA to pay more money to, prov to find a vendor that will provide better benefits. Um, I'd be curious, you said your dentist uh, rated the current plan as a five. Um, I'd be curious how, that, how they would have rated the previous plan. You know, was that a three? Well, then we've improved the benefits. Um, can they be better? Absolutely. And every, like I say, every union leadership is going to go in and say, and, and make an effort to improve benefits. Yeah. There's a cost, and we have to figure out how to get, the, to get that paid for. Mr. Toussaint, I've got a question for you regarding the... Um the Transamerica, uh. the, the, the thing. I noticed that you denied it in, uh, I think it was 2005. Yeah. And I noticed that Samuelson made them exclusive to come on MTA yeah. properties. Mm. Now, now, could you tell the people why did you deny Transamerica to come onto the properties? Well, it was the, the yeah, anyway, the, the, the action that the executive board took was in 2003. And the vote of the executive board was unanimous. It prohibited um, Transamerica from operating on local 100 properties. And the reason for that is that we were getting almost universal complaints from everybody about um, having paid premiums for, in some cases, for a number of years when it came time to collect that they were being, they had to jump through hurdles and they were being denied and they were having in, enormous problems. So officers and members had a similar complaint. 
So we began an audit, um, and that audit, which we eventually, which it took, we we it it, it 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 was very difficult to get information either from Transamerica or from the Trans Authority. But at the audit at that time, leading up to 2003, Transamerica was getting five to seven million dollars in premiums um, from our members. Wow. Um, and at the same time, they were being very difficult providing information to the executive board, and our members were complaining about the service that they were receiving. So we made we, we took a after a long discussion and reports and so forth. Executive board took a decision unanimously. Um, I can't recall whether Mr. Dongs was on the board, but Mr. Dongs was an officer. Samuelson was, I mean, in the, at least at the division level, Samuelson was, and several of the top of his current top officers, including Utano, was. Everybody was informed that this was of this action and this of this decision of the executive board. Samuelson came in in two thousand and um, in two thousand and ten. And by May of 2010, within five months, we came to find out Samuelson had signed an exclusive given um, a company named M3 Technology, an exclusive to operate on local 100 property. Um, and how, how I found this out, how we found this out, was that another company um, had... had um, sent a draft lawsuit to the International Union saying that Mr. Samuelson is not responding to our, our, um, our letters and we have a problem because this other company had paid M3 Technology $30 million to purchase from M3 exclusive rights to local 100 properties. And that local one, uh, M3 technology had, um, had cashed the check, the $30 million check, and then um, this company found out that M3 had, technology had opened back up shop in, um, in lo on local 100 properties, and therefore they were threatening to file a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. um, and all of that transpired in 2010 going into 2011, and somewhere in there, the matter disappeared, um, which suggests that um, that some kind of deal was cut to make this go away. The deal between who and who? Is between that? Samuelson, M3, and this other company. Okay. And would you, would you think the deal was under the table? Or? Well, why would any union president go into a room and sign an exclusive to a particular insurance company, a no-bid ex exclusive, to give an insurance company exclusive access to, to the 36, 38,000 local 100 members. Yeah. Why would anyone do that? And why, why won't you do, approach some... Since when are we, in, we into, are we into um, insurance peddling? I mean, so the whole process was very suspect. suspect. Mm -hmm. And these, these, um, these vendors are notorious for bribing and buying off union officials because of the enormous amount of money that they stand to gain from it. So there's a whole big question mark over this issue okay. um, that deserve to be investigated by the authorities 
um, because um, because it's very likely that it is that 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 that, that, that there's illegal stuff in there because it makes no there's no rhyme or reason no rational good common sense reason to do what Samuelson did and to do it behind without going through the executive board without going through the international but that's what occurred in 2010 right, I got I got one more question before I, I I'm give, sorry I got a comment just real quick on that right. for the you know Roger is a master of innuendo um, he believes this must have happened there has to be this there has to be that not a shred of evidence um, but he wants people to believe that the local leadership is corrupt and is taking money from somebody. That's what he wants people to believe. He has no evidence of that, but that's what he wants to people to believe. And he, and, he, and he glosses over, look, there are two reasons why a union leadership would do this, two obvious ones. One is the members, there has been a demand by members for the opportunity to get, um, uh, you know, the, the disability insurance that these kind of people provide. Um, and members want that. I never signed up for it, members want it. But what's missing from that tale is that yes, MP3, MP3, M3 technologies um, paid for the uh, access to our members and that money has gone to provide scholarships for our members, children. Um, there is not, you know, Roger may know about pocketing money. I've never accused him of that, but he's accusing the current leadership of that. Whatever mo the money they've gotten from the insurer, from M3 Technologies, has gone to uh, pay for scholarships to, at this point, the children of several hundred members. Would that be in the LM2s? Uh, yeah, it should be. Uh, uh, okay, I will offer to publish the draft lawsuit I referred to <coughs> and the letter that this other company I referred to sent to the international to complain about Samuelson, okay. I will make those available, and I can Fine. do it as a. So, so some company threatens to sue some other company, yeah. and we go, oh shit, uh, we, oh there's we, something bad we here. We got to wrap up, so I want to ask Toussaint yeah. one more question before we uh, give y'all your final word. I never asked you this. How <clears> do you feel about the WEP program? Well, I'm I'm hearing now that it's been expanded. I think there's been expanded that they're popping up more and more. I don't know what the figures are, what the facts are, but that's what I. Those are reports that I've heard up to recently that they're more, far more visible than they were in the past. I don't know if that's true. Um, if you're running around the subways, you may know. I mean, I, I see them, but I don't know, no, like I can't tell you number-wise, but are you against it or you, uh, you agree with it, having wet workers in the, in the system? But I think generally speaking, I think I consider it to be slave labor, so I think I oppose it on two levels. One is that I don't believe that people should be, people's labor should be unpaid. Right, because you're on you're on welfare, that you should be they should be required to work for without wages. Economic slavery. Right. Um, so I am concerned about that, and um, and to the extent that um, that they're there, then they, they some kind of pathway ought to be created to get get them on the to get, get at least get them cleaner, real cleaner jobs, and to um, so they no longer work for free as such. All right. On the other hand, I think I, I, I'm also concerned from the standpoint of, from a, from a, from a union standpoint, having, um, having um, a force like that taking away cleaner jobs. Um, so I, I think I have always opposed it from that angle as well. Um, 
those are those were jobs that used to be performed by our cleaners mm-hmm. um and sometime in the i can't remember whether it was the 80s or the 90s webs web was introduced might have been the late 80s i can't even no, it was the 90s i believe yeah yeah oh. huh no i think it was the 90s too yeah yeah um, it was a contract was very, opener in 96. And it was very controversial when it was introduced. I don't know if there's a, if, if there's a, still a number limit. I seem to remember 300, a 300 figure. I can't remember. I, I, I think initially it was 300 webs. All right. Um, I don't know if that number has, has changed, whether it's increased, whether it was, there was an, any agreement. Certainly there wasn't any agreement. Um, that I made or to increase any of those numbers. Um, but it's it this is a problem. Oh. You know, you have free labor in the subways and that's a problem. I don't you know, that's that's not right. Okay, look, Mr. Okay. Downs. Okay, okay no, I, have, I have one more question for Mr. Downs. <laughs> uh, one more question. And this is for um a Facebook um somebody on Facebook. They uh they, they mentioned that the um the two thousand in the two thousand nine LM twos there are nine union officers making over ninety-seven grand annually, and now we in the, in the current LM twos we have over forty officers making over ninety-seven grand. So uh, basically, um, to, if you could try to shed some light or give an idea, if you have knowledge on uh, who all these, well, you know what all these officers are doing, sure, and why they added the extra officers. I'll try. Um, I mean, first of all, let's, just in, in fairness, some of the increase is going to be accounted for by raises, right? People who are making 95 and have gotten raises since then are going to be over 97 now. So that's going to be some increase, you know, right there. I, I, I have no idea what the number would be on that. But, but uh, look, at, uh, John made a decision when he uh, took office that he was going to put the division chairs on the union payroll. And um, that was done. So that's 16 people, I think? 17 divisions. 17, okay. Um, so that's, you know, that's a significant number. So that was done for, is actually learning from, you know, the experience of, Roger's experience in getting fired by the TA when he was um, uh, on the TA payroll as chair. We didn't want the chairs who we wanted to be aggressive and out there fighting. We didn't want them to be uh, under the supervision and direct control of management. But also, there was the experience of chairs who were sent back to their tools by Roger for political reasons. Um, so for example, so it, Rod, or John made a commitment. He said, look, you got elected chair. You're on the payroll. You do your job. I don't care what you say. Do your job. You know, the members want you here representing them. You're going to represent them. And he set the salary uh, at 91000 in 2010. So in 2010, all the chairs made 91,000. I made 91,000. Joe Campbell made 91,000 as chair. Um, everybody, right? And so, and and all that has changed since then is we've gotten the contractual raises that everybody else has gotten. So that's going to bump us up over the 95. But so so a, a big part of that, almost half of the number you're talking about, is accounted by, accounted for by putting the division chairs on the payroll. And I just you know just by comparison. In that same year of 2010, when Joe and I made 91,000, which I think you'll agree, 91,000 is you know a train operator can make 91,000. It's not that big a deal. Um, Roger made 171,000 at the international uh, on the international staff. So um, the uh, 
and, and John has held true to his commitment to not retaliate against a chair who doesn't agree with him. Joe Campbell ran against John in 2012 as division chair. He stayed division chair, drawing the salary from the local. Let me ask you a quick question. What was the base salary for a train operator in 2010? Um, I... You know, the base salary is always tricky because every train operator works overtime. All right, let me ask you this. Um, was it I, was it 12000 less than it was today? Because you make 103000 103, And you, if you made that within uh, from 2010 to 2000 now, I don't think the base salary went up for the workers $12,000 from no, 2010. No, but it went up at the same percentage that my salary went up. You, you know as well, there are train operators. I'm talking about made, base salary, not overtime. Uh -huh. But yeah, I don't. You, you, I you, don't work forty hours a week either. Yeah, but you I have, don't work five days a week. You have you you have a, a base. Your your salary is basically base because it's um, you can't get overtime. I can't can, get overtime. Yeah, but it's your flat salary. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure which point is. I make you know there are train operators working the hours I work, as chair. There's no question I would make ninety-one thousand dollars as a train operator. But right, you know, the work is easier. Make, you know, in terms of being in an office, no question. I'm not saying it's not. But in terms of the hours put in. And, a, and the money that a train operator can make, you know, a train operator is not going to have a hard time making, you know, $100,000 uh, a year. Quick, 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 So you understand how this works. Traditionally, the arrangement was that, in TW, was that division, the division committee, the division chair and the vice chairs and the recording secretaries, to the extent that release time was assigned to their division, they were on company paid release time. Right. Okay. And when I when I took over in two thousand and one, initially we put all of the chairs on on um, on staff. And what happened is that the in at least four or five of the seven divisions, the divisions end up being paralyzed by infighting between the chairs and the vice presidents because the bylaw says that the division committee administers the affairs of the division and, and it, does not, it does not technically say that a, a chair has to, be, has to follow any instructions from a vice president. Okay. So what was happening is that in room after room, in department after department, they end up be in fighting and being paralyzed. So for instance, in Kai Krippen, in um, in um, RTO department, there was a there was a constant paralysis between the two division chairs, fellow named Crichton and Karubi, and Tim Skimmerhorn, who was the vice president, in fighting and they wouldn't follow instructions and so on and so forth. The room was paralyzed, and that situation was replicated in Kai Equipment, um, and in TA Surface and in Stations Department, at least four departments. So I changed that policy and re and returned it to the policy that existed before where the division chairs would be on release time paid by the authority and no longer on staff okay right and that's that's what happened then so um so this reference to retaliating against chairs later on any, anyone who's on staff after that after that point where the chairs were returned to release time that anyone who was who was on staff was on staff in the capacity as as a as an appointed staff member rather than as a chairperson. No one else was appointed after that time as you were chairperson, therefore you on staff. No one else. 
Okay. Now we got we gotta wrap it up now. But we gonna give you sixty seconds to leave the people with some, then we gonna have Roger lead the people with some. Sixty seconds. All right. First I wanna thank you guys for doing this program. We appreciate you uh, coming here too. Both, not just tonight, but the other programs you've had on so far. I've uh, Speak to the mic, please. Sorry, I've enjoyed uh, listening to to John, Anita, Joe Campbell, Roger earlier, um, and and partly I enjoyed I enjoyed just because it's it's interesting to hear people's recollections and see where things match up. I also found things very sad um, because of the potential that New Directions had um, in the union and in the labor movement, and I think that and that was lost. That it's and the the fact that that was lost is a shame, um, and I think that Roger has. Uh, demonstrated part of the reason why that was lost, his role in that to a considerable extent. He said earlier that no right-thinking union member will think that that 195 Montague was okay. It's, Roger set himself up as judge and jury about whether somebody was a right-thinking union member, whether they were committed to fighting the TA. As, as here, no shred of evidence, just his opinion. You know what, right-thinking union members can disagree about whether a union hall is good or not. Right-thinking union members can disagree about all kinds of tactical decisions. All right, so your turn, Mr. Toussaint. Yeah. At the end of the day, trans, the, the, the situation in TW Local 100, and as is in much of the labor movement, but I think it is accentuated in TW, is similar to the situation faced by the, by the communities that are dealing with police killings and... Um, that gave rise to the Black Lives Black Lives Matter movement. The civil rights move, the civil right, the traditional civil rights leaders had a, more or less abandoned the job, and Black Lives Matter stepped into it and said and captured the issue in the slogan "Black Lives Matter" and a movement was born. In a similar way, I think that you need a similar movement in TW, in Local 100, and in the labor movement. Right, because I think that um, that the current leaders of the of the local and much of the labor movement, to be to be to be fair, uh, are not up to the task and will be and will not lead the uh, the labor movement in a positive direction. So, we need a Black Lives Matter movement inside of the labor movement, a similar movement. I wanna um, I wanna just uh, say something before we you know wrap up. Um, first off, the um, base pay for a train operator now with the new raise is seventy one thousand seventy one thousand seven sixty. Based on how many hours? Based well, on forty 80, hour a week. Yeah, a forty hour yeah, week. Yeah, what train operator works forty hours a week? But you, you you can't go for yeah, overtime. Right. You got to go for base salary. What? Why? You go on what people earn. Like, what's yeah. a, what's somebody earning a year? Yeah. Right. You know. But what I, I do want to thank you. Uh, I want to I want to deeply thank you, Steve, for coming up here to the show. You know, took progressive action because you know. Um, Thanks for inviting me. No problem. And also, Roger, it's always a pleasure for you to come up here to the show to uh, progressive action and shed light. And if you want to, um, I actually reached out to John Samuelson via email to for an invitation to come on the show. So if you if you have that relationship with him, the way you could probably convince him to come on the show. <laughs> Do 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 Sam? Hold on, hold on. Did Sam Houston listen to the show yet? I have no idea. He hasn't mentioned it to me. Oh, okay. Okay. But if you have that relationship, I'm asking. If you have that relationship with Samuelson, I would I would appreciate it if you could ask him to come on the show so that he could speak to the members and he could and he could really explain things the way you know you did and the way Roger did 
And, you know, there's always going to be difference of opinion. But no matter what, at the end of the day, Tremel and myself, we're both union members. And we're doing this, and, we're, and our purpose for this is to get information out there. We, you know, I mean, if sometimes it may seem like we're taking sides, but in actuality, we just want to get information out there, and we want to get all as many members involved as possible in this process. Because this show has been more successful than Shopgates, the the union meetings lately. We only been active for like two months and got over three thousand plays. So the word is getting out there. And Mr. Mr. Toussaint, would you willing to come up here if, if, if Samuelson come up here? Sure. Because I'll be willing. I, I, I think people will pay to see that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, look, that was right. the Progressive Action Thanks, Show. Brothers. And You're welcome. Thanks, for everybody, for listening. Thanks, Mr. Toussaint. Thanks, right, Mr. Thank Downs. You, thank you. Thanks for coming out, y'all.